my sweet red roses to blooms for a penny. Who will buy my sweet red roses to blooms for a penny? Who will buy my sweet red roses to blooms for a penny? Who will buy my sweet red roses to blooms for a penny? Will you
Have you ever wondered if people will live for hundreds of years? Come see Aubrey de Grey and other prominent scientists at the Lifespan Conference on November 15th in Vancouver, Canada. You'll learn about new advances in human longevity, genomics, and what the future may hold for humankind. Early bird tickets are available now at www.lifespanbc.ca. This is Ink Studs, and we're in the home of Ed Brubaker uh, in lovely Los Angeles of our uh, LA road trip, the first leg of our many travels. Um, this is our last LA interview. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to kind of finish it off. Um, are you guys just driving back up after this, or are you cross-country? We're going to drive straight up. Uh, we're going to stop in middle of California and see Jade Williams. Oh, cool. The third, yeah, I'm okay. excited for that. Um, but there's something uh, kind of apropos about talking to you, um, because you kind of, our, our week has been pretty broad spectrum of comics, and yeah. you as a person have filled that broad spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I run the gamut, right? Yeah, and I was thinking about it, and we, we have a joke, like we refer to something as like the Mazzuccelli when someone does like, you know, does the mainstream and disappears off to the indies. And oh, you've yeah. Ca- you're kind of like the reverse Mazzuccelli. But you, you did the trick where you did indie, mainstream, and then back to indie again. Kind of. Well, I always, even when I was doing the mainstream stuff, I always had, like, something on the side that was, like, either creator-owned or sort of creator-owned, or I even hate that phrase, creator-owned, because... It's your personal work? Well, indie comics, we never referred to who owned it. Like, obviously, we all owned it. Right. 
Like I always like to think of it not, as not like the pocket of the man comics. Yeah, not the <laughs> yeah. I just looked at it as more as like original work. I, I always I was trying to use the phrase original work when I was like quitting Marvel. I was like I just want to do original work, and people were like, "What do you mean by that?" And I was like, "Obviously, I have to say creator owned, uh -huh. which is such a dumb name for a genre." It's like I'm gonna buy some creator owned novels. Like yeah, obviously, yeah. Stephen King owns his fucking novels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I you know I think. Partly when I was being a cartoonist, which I was really slow at, and I could only draw like one or two comics a year, and I was pretty unhappy with my own artistic abilities. I think I, I think I quit drawing just around the time I got like okay at inking, but I was always having friends ask me to like write stories for them, like Stefano, Eric Shanauer, mm -hmm. like just the odd person who wanted to collaborate with somebody and I always had ideas for stories that I couldn't possibly draw because I just my artistic abilities are basically like I want I could draw an Archie comic maybe yeah. like but not like a good one like <laughs> um, but uh, you know I, that was kind of I grew up just sort of drawing very cartoony kind of stuff and you know when I was a teenager I wanted to do Love and Rockets or something like that I wanted to be that kind of alternative cartoonist right. and then I think, like, discovering, like, Crumb and Harvey Pekar sort of turned me into, you know, starting to do, like, stuff based on my real life. Actually, it was Dan Klaus when I was, like, I think, like, 18 or 17. I met Klaus at Comic-Con and gave him a mini-comic that I had done. And he sent me, like, a postcard basically saying that, you know, I should take all my stories from my own real life and that everything in Lloyd Llewellyn was, like, actually something that happened to like him or his friends that he somehow repurposed and, and uh, yeah and like at the same time I was reading like the basketball diaries I think for the first time and so I was like well, I've had all sorts of crazy stories that have happened to me so I started writing stories and drawing them that way and just sort of that that kind of worked but I always had stuff I wanted to write that I didn't think I would be able to draw which mm -hmm. was always really frustrating to me as a writer so I kind of fell into it really like Eric was getting um, offers from DC to do more work, and we had done this thing called an accidental death in Dark Horse, and uh, Lou Stathis, who was a big editor at Vertigo at the time, wanted Eric to do one of their 64-page one-shots, and he asked if his friend could write it, and he said, well, can this guy write? And he was like, well, he's up for the Eisner for best writer right now, <laughs> so I hope so. And so then maybe. So, yeah, it's... Me, it's possible. So, and then I talked to Lou, and it was weird because I was like reading a Philip K. Dick book at that point. It was like I was like 25, and I was reading a, a Philip K. Dick book, I think Time Out of Joint, which had an intro by Lou when oh, he was wow. like an editor at the sci fi publisher or something. And he Lou was, had edited Heavy Metal for a while. Yeah, he was a really interesting. He was one of those guys that kind of an Archie Goodwin who he was had, everywhere. Yeah, yeah he, like comics changed when he died. Yeah, and he was like, he grew up with uh, Lou Statha, or well, with uh, uh, Matt Fiesel, mm -hmm. no, not Matt Fiesel, Matt Howarth. Matt Howarth, oh, okay. yeah. Matt Howarth, the Post Brothers. Like, he was an editor. Game, yeah, he was an editor for the Post Brothers for a long time. And Patty Jarris, who used to be at DC, grew up with both of those guys, actually. Yeah. And Hiroshima in the Post Brothers is, is based on her in high school. Oh, apparently. Yeah. yeah, when she was in high school, she was like, really skinny and had this huge hairdo. I had a Hiroshima t-shirt I used to always wear until I realized how 
intensely inappropriate was. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a giant nuclear blast Jesus. on it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I like the Post Brothers comic. There, when I was, like, really into punk rock, when I was, in, like, in, in high school, I, was, I remember being, like, 16 or 17 in the bank when you used to have to go into the bank to get, like, money out. And I was wearing, like, this really super offensive T-shirt that was, like, Hitler's world tour with like you know and like which dates had been canceled like England canceled Russia canceled like right. to me it was the most hysterical shirt I'd ever seen and then I was like in the bank and the old Jewish man in front of me turned to look at it and I was like oh my fucking god and I literally never I was like that shirt and the one that had like was like the angry Samoans or something with a picture of Reagan in a sniper scope yeah and I was like yeah, no, I won't wear, like, that was the last time I wore, like, a t-shirt that said something. I, even back then, I was like, no, no t-shirts that say things anymore. <laughs> so was it The Fall that you were nominated for? No, Accidental Death. We got nominated for, like, oh, okay. four for Eisner Eisen. Awards or something. Okay. Yeah, and then, so then working with Lou, I was still doing my own comics. And at that point, I really thought... I was kind of doing the, the dilettante thing, which a lot of my friends were doing at the time, where you would, like, take a job at DC for some money, but your, but your own comics were your real work. Yeah. And so you just kind of crap out this DC stuff really half-assed. And I noticed other friends of mine who were doing that weren't ending up really having a career out of it. It was just this thing that they wasted some time on and got some money for, yeah. and still had their name on it, though. And so I realized after I did that Prez comic that if I wanted to do more work like that, I had to really like make it as important to myself as my own work. So I had to really start finding things that I really wanted to write that I couldn't draw as well, which is what led me to like Scene of the Crime, I think, because I really wanted to do like a mystery series. That one really feels for me like kind of your breakthrough, like that in the fall. Like I don't know when the fall came out. The fall was a, like, I think I was writing both of them around the same time. Okay. Maybe maybe I wrote The Fall right before that, because that was me and Jason. Um, that was something we pitched to Bob Shrek when he was still at Dark Horse that was going to be part of some special new magazine that he was going to launch, oh, really? and then it didn't end up happening. And then it ended up in Dark Horse Presents instead, and then they didn't want to they didn't want to do a collection of it, so we did the collection through Drawing Quarterly, and now supposedly one of Jason's students is coloring it, and we're gonna put it out again as like a European album, like big hardback, which would oh, be wow. nice. That'll be through? Through hopefully through. Drawn and Quarterly, oh, okay. yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I haven't talked to Jason in like a year, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how long it takes to color 48 pages. <laughs> Not long. Yeah, I mean, we want to call it, have it colored like a Tintin style too, so oh, I think. Is a week of work? Yeah, a week of work, exactly, or through two days, depending on the how colorist. Many yeah, um, but yeah, I think I, while I was doing Low Life, I started doing like short stories here and there for Dark Horse Presents, and then Stefano and I did a three-part thing called Here and Now that was kind of like a private detective, existentialist thing. And this is the same Stefano that's inking The Walking Dead now, right? Yeah, yeah Stefano Gaudiano, yeah. Um, yeah, it's Gaudiano. I know, I used to call it, I used to mispronounce it. Um, but yeah, he was doing, like I think he had, I met him at Julie Doucet's place and he had just done an Eros comic that was like when he was really like scrounging for work and money every, uh, the, when I first moved to, Fan to, to, to Fantagraphics when I first moved to Seattle in the early 90s everyone either wanted to work for Fantagraphics or was doing Eros comics as a way to try to get into okay. Fantagraphics or they had a book at Fantagraphics like Brian Sundelbach and Scott Musgrove had a book at Fantagraphics but they 
were doing, at least Brian, I remember, was doing an Eros comic that was like the weirdest porn comic you'd ever seen in your life. I don't know if I'd want to see a Brian Sandelbeck. It's one of his, I feel like he found his voice on that comic, really? actually. There's a couple sequences in it that are, there's a sequence in it where, like, the editor of Eros Comics is yelling at his fictional character in it, and it's the slow zoom on this fanographics uh, office, the little house with the rain pouring down, and it just, it looks like a scene out of, like, Alan Moore Swamp it's Thing like or really something. really hard to masturbate to. Yeah, no, there was no masturbating to this one. But even, even, the... To have it under the name Eros would be ridiculous. Though there was nudity, and, yeah. and you know, but but yeah, that was a lot of people were doing Eros comics at the time. And I met Stefano, and then he wanted to work on something. And at that point, I was just I was so fast as a writer and so slow as an artist that I just if someone had if someone wanted to work with me and there was a way to to do it and get published and get paid for it, I would just come up with some story for them. And I think that's how like. A story I had written for myself, I ended up getting like Pat McEwen to draw for Dark Horse once. Oh, nice. And, um, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I saw the new Pat McEwen book on your shelf there. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen Pat in, like, 15 years, but, uh... And he was, he was up in Canada then, wasn't he? he yeah, was he was always... Yeah, he used to live in Vancouver, and then he moved to Victoria. Last time I saw him was in Toronto, actually, when I was staying at Chester's. Do you remember moving to Seattle? Like, was it hard to find the comic scene there? Oh, no. Like, I was... I was in the Bay Area. I was I had worked at Comic Relief mm -hmm. and it started getting I think I'd put out the first two issues of Low Life at that point and I had convinced uh, Gary Reed because I was embarrassed by most of the other stuff that Caliber was publishing mm -hmm. and I really wanted to be at like Fanographics <laughs> or Black Eye or Drawn and Quarterly or someplace like that felt right. more like the right place to be at that point. And so I was like, well, why don't I just convince Caliber to start like their own kind of indie line? And and I, uh, because of working at Comic Relief, I we just had tons of mini comics. So I discovered like Jason's stuff mm -hmm. through mini comics that we were that that uh, this guy Josh who worked there was like in charge of ordering mini comics. And so Jason had done this really cool cartoony mini comic with no dialogue in it, where he had hand colored. Uh, one panel like a couple different times the, the color red anytime the color red was in it, it was hand color this is Jason Lutz Jason Lutz yeah it was a totally yeah. different style than what he's known for now very cartoony yeah and so I had written to him uh, back when you had to write letters to people and uh, uh, do you know who Dame Darcy is yeah so um, of course you do <laughs> so uh, I was living in San Francisco at that point I had moved from Berkeley to San Francisco and the record stores and there was a record store on Haight Street that was like a used, used vinyl and hipster kind of store, and that's where you went to get like zines and stuff. And they had the first meat cake thing, which was like eight and a half by eleven and stapled on the sides. Mm -hmm. And I picked it up and I was like, "Oh, this chick is amazing!" And so I like got in touch with her and a couple other people. There was a guy doing a doing a self published thing called Angry Man that was really cool. And um, so I kind of got them all on board and pitched the idea of doing this line called, uh, at the time it was going to be called Monkey Wrench, but they wanted to call it Iconographics instead, which I didn't like as much. Mm -hmm. But um, that was like like 1991, I think, or maybe early 92. So it was through Caliber? It was through Caliber. Yeah, I remember talking to Bendis about it, and Bendis, Bendis and David Mack were like, why can't we be on the Iconographics line, which I thought was really funny. But... Um, but yeah, they published the first two issues of Low Life through Caliber, 
and then we did the iconographics thing and and Josh and I edited uh, this uh, anthology called Monkey Ranch that had a bunch of different people in it and then I sent the publisher like the vouchers for everybody so that they could get paid because I had gone over that you have to, to do an anthology you have to pay people you know and so we agreed on like two different page rates, which were both really low, of course. Yeah. And then I sent it in, and he was like mad that I had given like more than half the people the higher page rate. And I was like, yeah, but it's like Boyd Dangle, or you know, yeah. like people who are really good. Like only the unknown people that I give like the 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 really low page rate to instead of the pretty low page rate. Do you remember how different the rates were? Like twenty dollars to forty dollars. <laughs> I believe the higher page rate was forty dollars. And you know, so indie comics, that's still a high page rate. Yeah, forty dollars to do oh, yeah. a story in it. Yeah, forty dollars a page for a story in an anthology. But yeah, so it was like a scandal actually at the time that he didn't pay people, and then he blamed me. <laughs> there was an article in the Comics Journal about it that was like really made me look bad, and I was like, wow. And Jason was like mad at me for a little while because he wasn't getting paid, and I finally like. Had, had it out with the publisher and left the publisher and he paid everybody I think eventually just sort of grudgingly mm -hmm. but um, yeah it was, a, it was a bad scene but like a lot of people ended up sort of getting getting broadly published in the direct market for the first time because of it like Jason and Dame Darcy and right. a couple other people who are still doing comics actually or still somewhat known in comics at least and you know I don't even think I ever put out an issue of oh I, maybe the third one was through that no, I think I took it elsewhere before it actually even came out. Was that Aeon? So, Aeon, yeah. I went to, yeah, I think that was, I had offered it to Fantagraphics for like the third or fourth time, and, and Kim had turned it down again, really, really, really mean, in a really kind of pissy, mean way. I think Aeon's still in the, behind a, behind a firehouse in an alley. Yeah, yeah. Ed Vic, Ed Vic had a his house was downstairs and upstairs was was a yeah, Mood Press and and, yeah, and, and Aeon. Uh, I only remember Ed. There was a roommate named Andy who lived on who lived in Ed's in Ed's living room. Like the fan, the the comic scene in fan. So so yeah. So I knew Jason, and my girlfriend and I in San Francisco like broke up and it was like a really like awful ugly breakup and I just wanted to leave town and so I just called Jason up and I was like can I just come crash on your couch I'm gonna move to Seattle and he's like yeah sure so I stayed at Jason's house for a couple months until I wore out my welcome and then I moved into a boarding house and then like I met Tom and John like within a couple days of that and then next day I knew like both of them were moving into the boarding house too so suddenly we were all like living in a boarding when house. Uh, Sort of the right past Ravenna Park, like out. We were like 18th and 75th, probably, or maybe 65th. Wherever there's like an espresso place on the corner of like in 15th. Seattle? Yeah, in <laughs> Seattle. Yeah, no, but it was very, it was like, I can't remember the name of it, like Espresso Express, actually. Okay, yeah. I remember because we went there, we walked there every day. It was like 18th and 65th or 75th, one mm -hmm. of those. But it was like a street that was a, that was a, suburban street that a lot of the houses had been converted into boarding houses because it was near the college right. but not so near the college that it was like constant parties or anything mm -hmm. but yeah so tom and john and i lived there all of us and we did That's like zines and john lewis yeah john lewis yeah and we did a lot of zines and comics staying up we we at one point we were all decided we were gonna switch our schedule so that we would 
go to bed at six in the morning and be up until and wake up at like noon or two and then so that we would be able to do our comics while the world was sleeping or some shit. Do you remember what comic store you going to back then? Uh, probably the Xanadu mm -hmm. at that point. Um, There's a lot of comic stores in Seattle in the U district, the Fallout especially. Game was really cool because it had all the yeah Fallout. Cards. Yeah, when we moved to the U, we moved from uh, we moved from the U district from that boarding house. Uh, us and our friend Carlos, who had crashed on the couch in the hallway in our in our boarding house for like almost a year. And he was like doing illustrations for our zines, and anytime the landlord would come over, we would just hide Carlos uh -huh. and take all of his stuff and throw it in my closet. Like, <laughs> my room in this boarding house was as big as that little room you're in right now, probably. Was like I, was paying, I was paying like 200 a month to have like a bed and a desk, basically, and there was like a shared bathroom. But I, it's now looking back at it, it was like one of the best years of my life. And like the zine that we did where we spied on our roommates and Tom and I did these comics about them that I wrote and Tom drew in like a Charles Schultz style. That oh, were, wow. yeah. I have the flats up in uh, up in Seattle. I think I want to get it back in print because it's it was one of my favorite things that I've ever been part of. We accidentally started secretly recording our roommates, and I say accidental <laughs> because Tom Tom was was uh, decided that there was some girl that he'd grown up with that he. He saw her when he went back east for some trip, and he decided that he he wasn't spending enough time with her, so he was just gonna walk around with a tape recorder and just record his evenings with her, and like occasionally talk to her, mm -hmm. and just record his evenings hanging out with us. Be like, now we're walking to the QFC to get beer, and so we were just like hanging out one night in my room, and one of our roommates burst in drunk and started ranting at us, and Tom had it all on tape. And so we sat and transcribed the tape for hours because it was the funniest shit you'd ever heard in your life. This is like ex-crack addict, stoner, drunk, rant coming into our room to just like make fun of us. <laughs> and yeah, just one of, the, one of the best experiences ever. And then we also had this guy who lived there who, he wasn't from England and he had a slight British accent. But I believe it was all from like watching Monty Python as a child. So kind of like an Upton accent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he um, he was very into whatever thing was the best, and so he would lecture you about the best this and the right. best I that. I like the best too. Yeah, I like the best of things. Yeah, he he had a book called The Best, The Best, The Best, which was like a gag gift that someone gave him, I think. But we started recording him when he was on the phone talking to people because he would stay on the phone from like midnight till three in the morning talking nice. to his girlfriend and he would lie on the disgusting kitchen floor and just talk and talk and talk and so Tom just started standing in the hallway and recording him <laughs> and we got some priceless shit like him going down the list of everyone he works with and rating their IQs based on his guesstimates that's and so horrible yeah it was but super fucking funny because they were all geniuses but he was unimpressed by all of them. Eh, he's not too smart. I'd say like a 175. It's like, that's like 40 more than genius or something. <laughs> like, and, and there was one point where he's like, I haven't seen her be too, be too good in anything except for butt size. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, yeah, so, like, and she's too good. Yeah, too she's good. too good. But he had like, when we, when we first moved into this, when I first moved in, there was like a TV in the living room. 
and there was a note on top of the TV that had the rules for using the TV. And we like took that note to the Kinkos and, and shrunk it down so we could put it in our zine. Nice. But like the note was like things that you weren't allowed to do near the TV, like no rapid arm motions, uh-huh. no, no throwing things at the TV or in its vicinity. And nice. Tom, when Tom was moving in, he stops and starts making fun of the note. He's like, oh, look, rapid arm motions. And Alex, the guy whose note it was, was sitting at the table eating the biggest steak you've ever seen in your life. And he looks over at Tom and he was like seven feet tall and skinny as shit, but he ate nothing but protein. And he looks at Tom, and he's got this huge steak knife, and he goes, oh, I could throw this knife in your direction, but then I'd be in violation of my own rule. <laughs> and it was just like, that was the world that we lived in. And, and like, our other roommate was this guy who was, like, in his late 30s, whose girlfriend was this, like, beautiful 19-year-old girl who we were all in love with, who she paid his rent and shit. And one time, he sold fake acid to everybody in the house and then she found out he was selling acid and he didn't want to lie to her and tell her that it was bogus acid and so he was like oh yeah we yeah we can do something too and they were going on a camping trip and he was like you could tell that it was like he just knew that he had to pretend not to not to be who he really was like for two whole days and they came back and his girlfriend was like, yeah, that acid was totally bogus. I'm like, yeah, everybody in this house knew that. <laughs> like, he literally went and bought construction paper and like made the perforations himself. <laughs> like, Drew little but, things in each square. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting year. And then we moved to this house on Capitol Hill that was like, we moved to the top, the top floor of the Casanova Arms mm-hmm. on uh, Denny and Bellevue. Mm-hmm. It's like, and we rented the two apartments next to each other because we couldn't find a four bedroom that we could afford. So we just rented two two bedrooms right next to each other. And we each would just come and go from each other's apartment like it was a 50s sitcom or something. Nice. So yeah, the early, the early 90s in Seattle was like a really fun time. And then it was pretty easy. I was like, I, I moved into Jason's house immediately and Jason was working at Fanagraphics then as an art director. Nice. And so... My first night there, I went to like a fanographics party and then a stranger party, and the next thing I know, I was like working at the stranger. So right, and Jason's like, working there too. Wasn't he? Yeah, Jason. Yeah, Jason went from fanographics to he took over for James Stern when Stern's oh, like yeah. when Stern's Retina detached. Oh, and like, I remember I remember hearing that you're part of a group of comic people that met at the uh, Hurricane for a while. What's the Hurricane? This is a twenty-four hour diner. Oh, yeah, I don't know if we necessarily met at a diner. We we. We would hang out at different places. We had like a weekly support group kind of thing where we would meet and show each other work that we were working on. Right. Um, yeah, we tried to keep it small, and then and then David Lasky kept inviting new people all the time. Oh yeah, you're right. It did end up at the Hurricane after that because Lasky was always it was it was it was Jason, Megan, James Sturm. Tom Hart, John Lewis, me, and Dave Lasky, mm-hmm. originally. And it was like, those guys had all won Zarek grants, and I was already getting published. And um, so we would meet and just kind of discuss our grand plans for being the best cartoonists in the world ever, basically, and showing each other our work and stuff. And then I remember one time, uh, uh, the guy who did King Cat, um, John, yeah, John Porcelino and Zach... Sally and a guy named Mr. Mike, who was like a mini comics guy, uh, were they were on like a big ro- mi- like a mini comics road trip, mm-hmm. and they they came and crashed at our place for a while and went to one of our meetings, and then Dave started inviting like all sorts of other people, and I remember Jennifer Daydreamer became part of it for a while. It used to be like a thing; it would go from 
from people's houses to people's house. And, and Kathor Jensen, actually, when he was still in high school. Oh, wow. We would go to, yeah, we, we had a meeting at his house once in his bedroom. There was like 14 <laughs> of us. And he's like opening the door to yell at his mom and stuff. Mom, shut up. I've got people here. <laughs> um, he was super into Evan Dorkin comics at that point. Like him and his friends would run around doing milk and cheese gags to play, to, they would run into stores and yell Merv Griffin and no one knew what the fuck they were talking about because <laughs> no one outside of a comic store had ever heard of milk and cheese. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, he, we all went to his high school graduation actually in, in 1994. That's pretty totally, sweet. Yeah. He was like, we were, we were kind of like, you know, his demented mentors or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's weird to think back on all that stuff. I have like a good memory for it, but I never, I almost never think about that stuff now because I, other than Jason, I never hear from any of those guys, Tom and John, I keep in touch with, but mm-hmm. you know, Megan Kelso, I've probably seen, I saw once in the last couple of years. Do you um, try and keep up with anyone's work? Yeah, I read I read almost all their stuff. I think. I mean, John does so much, so sel- seldomly publishes yeah. anything. But um, yeah, Tom, I keep up with most of Tom's stuff. Um, has James Stern even published anything in the last like five years? Mm, I think his last book was probably five years ago. Yeah, and Jason's so slow now that he's out teaching at James's school. Um, I don't even know what Jason's doing for. Uh, He's He's still doing Berlin. Is it still going? Yeah, we were talking about the two. It's going to go 24 issues. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to believe it's only going to go 24 issues because I feel like he's been working on it our entire lives at this point. But but yeah, that was originally going to be like a four-year plan to publish that whole thing. And it's turned into like, I think it's now longer than it took Howard Spiegelman to finish Mouse. When I uh, I went to White River Junction three or four years ago, um, just for a night, and uh, my friend showed me around the day, and we went by his studio, and they showed me this, like, very complex tracking method of his, like, page progress, and, like, oh, yeah. the expected completed date. Yeah, he's... 20XX. Yeah. He's he's very methodical about how he does things, too, which is, a, like, by the time he's actually sending the page to Drawn and Quarterly, he's probably drawn it, like, eight times. Oh. He draws it tiny, and then he blows it up and does it, and then he flips the page over and draws it backwards, and then he used to do at that point then burnish the pencil down onto he would do he would pencil the back with like a thicker pencil like somehow and then he would he would draw his pencil on acetate and then burnish it down onto the bristol so the only really light pencil line would be on the bristol for inking so he never had to erase anything i don't know why he ended up in at that method but him and James Sturm were both really formal about how they did things, and they, they would always be flipping pages around, looking at pages in a mirror to make sure everything was symmetrical. And they had all this like art school training that I never had, so I was that all that all seemed like they were really formal. I was just happy to like be able to get a brush line that I didn't hate. But um, so yeah, that that scene was pretty, you know, it was pretty active, and it was a big part of our lives. I think in our mid twenties and. You know, there was a lot of drinking and partying that went along with that. And I think I heard a story of you going to a party in San Diego and ordering pizza for the room. Oh, yeah. And having them pay. Oh, you heard about this from Len, maybe? I don't know who it was. It was actually, no, this is even better. Sorry. Wow, this goes way back. This is like back when I lived in San Diego when I was like probably like 19 or 20. And uh, me and these two friends of mine, Dreeky and Zoe, uh, were hanging out with Dan Cloud and Mort Todd and we were like just getting drunk in their hotel room all of us and 
then we were hungry and I was like, oh, you know what? These guys across the street are having a party at their hotel. And then I think more Todd was like, oh, let's order a bunch of pizzas for their, for their party and then go over there and, and just show up when the pizza's there and eat pizza and then leave. And I was like, okay. He's like, do you know what room they're in? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so we pranked them by sending like 10 pizzas to their party and they just collected, they just had no idea. Like Derek McCullough told me later, like, he's like, yeah, just pizza showed up and everybody just collect, just pitched in and paid for the pizzas. <laughs> so, but they were having like a jello shot party. So, so they of course, were happy to have yeah, they were, they didn't have any clue. And I told Derek later, I was like, yeah, we sent those pizzas to your party. But uh, yeah, I used to be stuff. like this sort of kid hanger on to the, the like, them and the Hernandez brothers, like Jackie Estrada just sent me a picture that she took sometime around like 86 or 87 with me and the Hernandez brothers and this other guy who I haven't seen since then. And she's like, is this possibly you, the skinny kid with the, with the white hair? And I was like, yep, that's me. <laughs> like I had like big kind of like platinum dyed hair at the time, but it's yeah, I was totally like you know, yeah, it was, I was before Seth existed, <laughs> before I knew of him at least, yeah. but, um, yeah, I was like, I think when I was like 15 or 16, I met Jaime at Comic-Con when Mr. X was out, yeah. and I was like, the first time I ever saw anything of theirs was like the first issue of Mr. X, and I just ended up just kind of wandering around Comic-Con with him, and ran into him at a party that night, and we just kind of hung out at the beer tap talking about punk rock bands and stuff, and so for years, I would just go to those shows and just kind of be their groupie and then when I started getting published and then I was like it's not really cool to be someone's groupie um Jaime is kind of an interesting thing for us in this trip um like our first stop was at the Elrids and Mike has uh, the first page of Mr. X up in his wall oh, yeah. like next to his TV so he can constantly see it and a lot of people talk about Jaime and just like how much his work means to them and how much it changed them and I was thinking with your thing, I mean, I've got this, like, big bound book of a whole bunch of comics, and the earliest one in there is the Purgatory USA. Oh, yeah, with their with cover, the, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was when I first, like, started getting published, and I kind of basically just weaseled them into doing a cover, and I paid them like it was, like, a convention sketch that they did a jam on. But they drew it, like, for me to do as my cover. They sent it to me later, and it was, like... Yeah, it was kind of amazing to think that the first thing you're getting published, you have the Hernandez brothers doing a cover for. But how audacious of me to be like a 19-year-old kid to think that that's even appropriate to ask <laughs> the, your favorite artists if the they'll do a cover. Yeah, at that point, I think, at that point, Gilbert was probably my favorite cartoonist in the world. And like, I think I liked Gilbert more than Jaime at the time, even because I thought Gilbert was like, like his writing just really hit me more, I think, in a, in a way than Jaime's did at the time. And I feel like it's almost the opposite. Like, I feel like Jaime has sort of become a, a much deeper writer in a way than I ever expected him to. Hmm. And, like, I don't know. I, I'm amazed that I still read those comics and I still care about all those characters all these yeah. years later. Like, I really thought around issue 25 or 50 that they were going to stop. Like, when they ended Love and Rockets and started doing different stuff, I thought they were just going to start doing... All sorts of different things. I had no idea they would keep going with all the same characters forever. I think Beto did for a while. He tried to, yeah, but he kept coming back to Luba and kept coming back to all these different characters. And I think you know, they create a believable world like that. Like to me, I compare what they do to like Walt Kelly or mm -hmm. 
or you know Al Cap or something where you've just created this world where you want to just watch the characters go around in it. You know, like I don't know what that would be like. I think that would be maybe really creatively satisfying, but also really fucking hard. Yeah. What was it about that in particular for you starting out as a cartoonist and seeing their stuff? You know, honestly, I think Mr. X just blew me away. I think at that point, the few, like, I'd seen underground comics, like, when I was, when I was, like, a kid, there used to be, like, next to the San Diego Zoo, there's, like, a path you can go from the San Diego Zoo to Balboa Park, and there used to be, like, this, these hippies that would sell underground comics out of, like, a little stand there, and I remember, like, when we were, like, 12 or something, my, my friend and I, like, walking by and then kind of looking around and then, like, no one's paying attention. We went over and we were looking and I was looking at, like, a Mr. Natural or something. I was like, God, this comic makes me feel sick inside. <laughs> and, and so I wasn't really, like, that... I, I, I was reading, I think, by the time I read Mr. X, I was reading, like, Cerebus and, like, Journey and, like, sort of the alternative comics, but pre... When before that market really exploded with a lot of material, like pre black and white boom kind of, and then I read Mister X, and I had ne- I don't think I'd ever read a color comic like that, like because it was, and I'd never seen art that just spoke to me like that. Like his storytelling is just so amazing, like right out of the gate. The yeah. guy's like one of the best cartoonists ever, you know. And the early Love and Rocket stuff, where Maggie the Mechanic and Race Bannon and all that stuff, like it just really, or it's not Race Bannon, is it? Rand Race. Rand Race, yeah. But a total Race Bannon ripoff. <laughs> like that stuff really did feel like Johnny Quest or something, but with like a punk rock vibe to it, and they were all into wrestling, and like it just felt like all the stuff that I loved thrown into one book. I, I read Mr. X first, and then I read the first four Mr. X, and then I tracked down like all the Love and Rockets I could get. And I remember. At some point, I weaseled uh, Mario or one of them into giving me one of the original Love and Rockets number ones that they had printed like five hundred of themselves. Oh, nice. um, yeah, I wish I still had that. That like went up in a fire with a lot of cool old art that I have oh, and no. stuff. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, now it's twenty years ago. Yeah. But, but yeah, like my when I left San Francisco for Seattle, I left all my like a bunch of records and books and original art and stuff at a friend's house and their house burned down so but someone also died so it's kind of hard to be yeah. upset about your about like oh I don't have all the art that I drew in my life but also I hated all that art so it seems like <laughs> you've kind of distanced from the low lifes and kind of it's very separate time for you creatively well yeah I mean that was stuff I really created in my adolescence you know, I feel like, like, I started doing, I started publishing comics as a teenager, you know, like, yeah. doing mini-comics, and, like, Purgatory USA came out when I was, like, 18 or 19 years wow. old, so, I yeah. I you were that young then. Yeah, no, I started getting, I was super, like, this was going to be my career, I was going to be a cartoonist, and that was it, and then, you know, comics are really hard to do, and I'm not, a, I was never a fast artist, so for me... I started agonizing over every story that I was going to write. And I think after the last low life that I did, I just didn't want to write any more comics about myself. Yeah. Because I was, like, really hard. Like, I was writing a comic about a really, like, painful breakup several years after the breakup and basically spending six months of my life reliving this awful thing to try to create a piece of art. And at the end of it, I was like, fuck, I'm fucking exhausted. I just want to write fiction. And at that point... 
when I started doing low life, all the stuff that I was reading was like the Beats and Bukowski and Hardy Picar and like all this stuff that was people writing about their own lives. Yeah. And by the time I finished doing it, I was much more like most of the books I was reading was like Philip K. Dick or Steve Erickson or you know Paul Oster or you know just different stuff that I was more interested in trying to pursue that kind of writing and it's interesting like I when we moved I was unpacking and I found the box of Dead Enders books that DC sent me that I'd forgotten I even had and I started flipping through Dead Enders for the first time in like 10 years and I read a bunch of them and I was like oh man this was like the sequel to Low Life in some ways like all almost everything that happens in that book is taken from something that happened to me and my friends and like even the, there's a story in there where where these guys accidentally blow up their own porch and the cops come and stuff and that happened to me and my friend Rob when we were all on acid one night like he started throwing cigarette butts around and this other friend of ours flicked a cigarette butt up and it disappeared and it apparently landed back in the couch and smoldered for like an hour and then the couch caught fire and there were paint cans next to the couch that started blowing up and helicopters were circling the house and the cops were pounding on the door and we had to wake up our only roommate who wasn't on drugs to go deal with the cops and it was totally insane but I was like oh that I'll put that in dead enders and so I was looking at that and I was feeling like it's hard to like even read, reading that is hard because I was making me just remember being young so much and I feel like I think that's part of it is like I just you know, when I, went, when I went from sort of writing memoir-like kind of stuff, because I always changed enough stuff and changed people's names and tried yeah. to make it more of a story. So I never, I always thought I was writing sort of fictionalized autobiography, which is kind of, I'm sure, what Bukowski and, and Kerouac and everybody yeah. did. You know, I don't, I'm sure everything happened differently than, you know, certainly according to all my friends. Certainly didn't happen that way, <laughs> but but yeah. Once I started writing fiction, I think it was uh, Steve Weissman actually. When I was living in San Francisco uh, before, after I had lived in Seattle for a while, and I moved to San Francisco, and I was working at this bookstore on Castro Street, this little place called Books Etc. That was this used bookstore, and um, it was the best job ever to be like an artist or a cartoonist at because. You could work like four hour shifts and just sit there and read a, read a book. And I was getting tired of being interrupted while reading things I cared about mm -hmm. at the front counter. And so I just started reading Sue Grafton novels. And I figured at the end of my shift, I'll just flip to the end and find out who did it, you know? And Steve Weissman came in and we've been friends for a couple of years. We met at Comic-Con and I was hanging out with him pretty often in San Francisco. He saw me reading like, H is for homicide or something and he was like what the fuck are you doing he took that out of my hand he went to the back and came up with a bunch of Lou Archer novels mm -hmm. the Ross McDonald books and I started reading those and within like half a book I realized like this guy's writing his own autobiography as a series of mystery novels and it's so much cooler than just writing your own story I was like because I had already, I had always been reading like pulp stuff, but I would read like Jim Thompson and stuff where it was always from the point of view of the criminal, not the person trying to solve the crime. And so that was, and I always, when someone asked me how I would refer to Jim Thompson, I would be like, well, it's like Bukowski, but with a plot. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, the alcoholics get involved in murder too. <laughs> like, like, but so I always kind of, yeah, and I always kind of liked that, like the noir style. So reading those Lou Archer books, though, really like opened my eyes to why people like Nabokov loved mysteries or, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of big writers will also secretly write mystery novels on the side. 
And so I just really got obsessed with that form because I'd watched mystery movies and stuff, but it's just something about a mystery novel. It's like a puzzle and a story at the same time. And if you're really good at it, it's talking about a lot of really interesting things. And I noticed especially like they could talk about cultural issues in a mystery as part of like, and it would just relate to the plot, like, like Chinatown, you know, it's talking yeah, about right. like cultural and, and corruption and like all sorts of stuff gets in there. And I just, it just kind of really sparked something in me. And, uh, Lou Stathis died and, um, Shelly Roberg at the time, who's Shelly Bond now was his girlfriend. She took care of him for like the last year of his life when he couldn't speak or anything. Right. And Lou, short story about it. Yeah, it's uh, Paul Pope and, and Paul Jenkins, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, so she wanted to work with people who Lou had liked, and after I did Prez at Vertigo, Lou would keep having me pitch for things, and I wasn't getting the job ever, because Garth Ennis or someone would always end up walking in at the last thing and go, oh, I want to write Unknown Soldier, and so yeah. I wouldn't get it after months of work on pitches and stuff. And or Brian Azarell and I once talking about how we both spent months pitching for like The Phantom Stranger, which is like, a series they never even ended up doing. And we like, we're sitting there counting on like, I'm gonna get that Phantom Stranger job. But um, in John Lewis and I and Pat McEwen actually pitched a book that was like a modern day take on Witch Boy at one point where it was gonna be, be like awesome. Witch Boy with like a tattoo that moved around on his body. I have the proposal somewhere. We changed it and called it Wicked, which before the, the book <laughs> was out. But, um, but yeah, that was kind of like, we thought Vertigo might be our ticket out of being super poor. And um, so Shelley started calling and trying to get me to pitch ideas to Vertigo again after I'd given up on trying to get work there. And she just wouldn't take no for an answer. And I'd, I'd pitch things and then I'd be like, eh, I don't really want to do that. And she was trying to steer me towards things that seemed very Vertigo. And I was like, I'm just not, just not that into that stuff. Like I'm not into goth, I'm not into any of that stuff. And she said, well, what is it that's so great that you want to do that you think we're not cool enough to do? And I was like, well, I want to do a mystery series. Like, I just want to do like a private eye story, like Rockford or something, but like, you know, modern. And she's like, well, write up a pitch then. It's like, why do you think someone wouldn't publish that? And I was like, I don't know, because you guys don't do anything like that. And she's like, yeah, we want something different. So I wrote up the pitch like overnight and Karen Berger approved it the next day. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, shit. And then that kind of ended up becoming a career eventually like that led to being offered work on Batman and Batman led to being offered Catwoman which is where I finally figured out how to sort of bring my own voice to that stuff yeah and then at the same time uh because of a Batman event that I was involved in I ended up meeting Scott Dunbeer through Alan Moore because we were, there was this Batman event called Turning Points that me and Greg Rucka and Chuck Dixon, we mm -hmm. each wrote like one, it was a fifth week event, so yeah, it was like, like five Paul issues. issues yeah, Paul Pope drew one of Greg's, I think. Um, and one of my issues was basically like an epilogue to The Killing Joke. They were like, we want to do the story of like the first time, because The Killing Joke was made retroactively canon, but they never showed the story of how Barbara suddenly became in a wheelchair, so they wanted to do the story that took place after that, when like Bruce has to deal with you know, the fact that one of the people he works with has been crippled by the Joker. And I was like, oh, that's actually a good story. Like, I'll write that. And there were two pages in it that needed to reference the killing joke. And I was like, I'm not going to rewrite Alan Moore. And so I took panels from the killing joke and just 
took the actual dialogue directly from The Killing Joke and put it in. And I said, I want to credit Alan Moore for these pages. And DC was like, no, we don't do that. Do, you know, it's work for hire. Like, you can take scenes from other comics and use them as flashbacks. Like, that would set a really weird precedent if we gave someone credit for that. And I said, all right, well, can we at least pay him for, my, for those pages then? And they were like, no, we don't do that. And so I got Alan Moore's address from someone, and I like, wrote him a letter and sent a check for those two pages, and I think I had a copy of the scene of the crime trade. Yeah. And I never heard from him, like months passed, and you know, I was like, well, the check never got cashed. And then suddenly when my phone rings one day, and it's Scott Denbeer saying that Alan Moore had called him and said a bunch of nice things about me, and how I was like this really honorable guy, and that he read Scene of the Crime and thought it was really great and said that Scott should hire me to work on something. And so that's how I started getting work at Wildstorm. And you know, and that's how Point Blank came up, which was something they brought to me. They wanted to do like a murder mystery. And so because I had done Scene of the Crime and Scott was already a fan of my comics before that apparently. So that kind of led to, you know, my whole career in a way. It's like really just responsible for you know, one phone call from Alan Moore to Scott Denbeer, you know, was like, and then it led to me and Sean working together regularly, who, you know, it's been 15 years now, and we've worked together pretty much every month since then. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, but that's always how it is. Like, you think your career's going to be one thing, and then if not for Eric Shanauer, I wouldn't have a career at all. You know, like, Eric was just a friend of mine from the comic store, and I was trying to get to figure out how to make a living as a cartoonist. And he was doing all these fantasy comics, but he, he was like a huge fan of like Jaime Hernandez and all these, you know, Dave Stevens and just all these really great artists who, when he would show them his work, he didn't feel that they necessarily took it seriously or really even yeah. looked at it like, oh, this Oz comic, I'm not going to read this. So he wanted to do something contemporary, but the next thing he was already starting to work on was what became Age of Bronze, which he's been working on for longer than Berlin's been around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and but there's more issues. Yeah, there's more issues, that's for sure. He's done like 40 issues in, in 20 years. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, he, he basically was like, I want to do something contemporary, but I don't have any ideas. And, I, and he and I had both lived in Gitmo as kids at different times. Like he lived a couple houses down from where I lived like five years after we left. And... So we would always talk about how the fact that you know we both had lived in the same block in Gitmo, and I mm -hmm. and I was like, well, what if we did something that took place like in the '70s in Gitmo, like some weird horror story? And that's how Accidental Death came up. And so he was like, well, why don't you write that and I'll draw it? And like, had he not said that, like, I probably wouldn't have a career right now because like no one was offering me like work writing for like established artists. And then because of that, like everything just kind of followed. I wrote Eric's coattails into DC and, you know, all that stuff just kind of came one after the other. So I think the only, the only time I've made it like a plan and stuck to it is the last few years. Everything else just kind of fall into place? Yeah, I mean, things happen and you have to like make a choice. Like, do I want to follow this opportunity or not? Or, you know, I think at the time when I, when I, was offered Batman, I was like, how could I possibly do a Batman comic? And Mike Carlin was like, well, you just wrote a mystery. Batman's a detective. And then I was like, oh. And then I went and watched a bunch of the Bruce Tim and Paul Dini Batman cartoons, and I was like, oh, these fucking things are great. Yeah. And then I was like, can I have the Batman animated book instead? And they were like, no, we want to give you the actual Batman book. 
was like, yeah, but that one's got, like, continuity and stuff. So I came in as, like, a huge, like, alt-comic snob into that world. And then I quickly learned that, like, I had to really care about what I was doing. And I had to find a way to put myself into it or I wouldn't actually be like giving my readers their money's worth. Yeah. And I feel like I watched a lot of my friends kind of try to drop into that world and make a living at it. Tom and John and Dylan Horrocks and people who would kind of drop in and then just get frustrated with it. I think Dylan was probably leave. the worst person for that. Yeah, Books of Magic. Well, yeah. yeah, I know the Batgirl. Oh, he did, oh yeah, Batgirl, I forgot he even did that. Yeah, yeah, his Books of Magic I thought was pretty good. Yeah, but even like Eddie Campbell writing Hellblazer, and he lasted like four but issues. But not for his ability, but for no, his, just a bad fit. For his yeah. ability to work with the people he was working with. Yeah, that's probably true too. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't ever in, interact with him when he was doing that stuff, even though I was writing Batman at the time. I think, or maybe I was on my way out of that office at that point. But he told me a story in an interview about how he was like in this room of men, all talking about how to kill off this teenage. A spoiler. Girl. Yeah, I wasn't. And that was like the that. breaking point for him. Yeah, I wasn't at that meeting. Yeah. Those meetings are weird when you're sitting in a room plotting out, like, an event or anything like that. Like, I had a, a couple of those at D.C. with, like, Bruce Wayne murderer and another one. I can't remember what it was. But but that the one thing that came out of one of those meetings was, like, Gotham Central, which we had kind of been pitching that idea for a few years, and then Powers came out and was a huge hit. And I was like, see, like you could do this, but with Batman, with actual DC characters in it. And, and then they had approved the idea and we were waiting for Lark to start on it. And Greg and I kept pushing the name Gotham Central and they were pushing us to call it like Gotham Murder City or something like that. And Jeanette Kahn just happened to come to like half of an afternoon of a Batman meeting. And I was sitting next to her and she was like a huge fan of everything I was doing for them. And so I just sketched out the Gotham Central logo and like slid it over to her. I'm like, isn't this a great name for our like Batman book? And I had like drawn the little badge and everything. And she was like, oh yeah. And Mike Carlin looked at me like, how dare you go over my head? But I got the name for it's our book. Bat, bat Murder Murder. Yeah, Bat, bat Murder Man. Um, but uh, yeah, those, those meetings are weird. I wasn't at that one with spoiler, thank God. Right. But that but, seemed like kind of a a coup to pull to be able to do a crime story that was in because Gotham's weird and it, it doesn't have like it, it's not a real city it doesn't Bruce Wayne didn't yeah. have a real face it yeah an artist artist yeah that's true well the the interesting thing about like what Greg and I my first month there Greg and I had to write the spine for this thing called Officer Down which was when Jim Gordon gets shot and retires from the police force and I was super bummed that basically the second I got offered Batman, Jim Gordon was off the book. And I'm like, that's my favorite character. Mm -hmm. Like, and Greg and I were writing this thing. And when we were, yeah, yeah, they're murdering Batmite. But when they, um, when they, uh, when we were plotting this thing, we did, there was one issue that was basically like an episode of Homicide, because it was pre The Wire. And it was like these two cops walking through a crime scene that supposedly Catwoman has committed this crime and they're looking at it and envision and that was so much fun to write that I was like they had been pressuring us to team up on a book and they wanted us to do Batman and the Outsiders mm-hmm. and I was like let's just say we don't want to do that and that we want to do this Gotham City Cop thing instead and it took us years to get it going mm-hmm. for that but basically we just kept pushing for that because we thought there's a wealth of stories to be told that aren't being told that that are the kind of things we're good at actually like 
because Batman's not scary when your story is being narrated by him and you're hanging out in the Batcave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that world is really scary when you're like a cop walking into and a place where the Joker has murdered like 400 babies. Or your partner just you gets know. frozen. Yeah, exactly. That was the pitch. It was like, what if you open the wrong door and your partner gets frozen and then the guy smashes him into pieces while you're frozen to the floor watching? Like, yeah. And they were like, oh, wow, that's really powerful. And so that was like our pitch. And there were for years they were going to make it a TV show, and but Chris Nolan wouldn't uh, let them do anything with Batman while he was working on those Batman movies, which I totally respect. Yeah. But at the same time, I was bummed when they announced this Gotham show and it wasn't Gotham Central and it was more like Smallville with Jim Gordon, kind of. So Probably it was like filmed in Vancouver. And... Yeah, it is filmed in Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally um, aware of it. Yeah, um, yeah, you guys could probably be in it <laughs> as extras, um, but uh, but yeah. So like all that stuff just kind of came together. I always just kind of drifted towards the work that my talent kind mm-hmm. of whatever talent I have seems to be for like crime kind of right. writing and and like you know sleeper was me like tapping into espionage stuff but mm-hmm. putting it into superhero. Kind of stuff. I was just trying to find a way to bring something I was more interested in to superheroes because I also felt like superheroes isn't really a genre. It's just, you know, it's something that you could add a different genre to to make it more interesting, but otherwise it's just a heroic, it's just mythology or heroic fantasy or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that to bring, to bring like something more of a voice to it, you have to add something. And so that was me just trying to make my job fun mm-hmm. and to so to be able to write the kind of stuff I wanted to write so it'd be like Gotham Central is a great place to do police procedural but the bad guys are the Mad Hatter and you know but I mean if you I don't know if you read that the one where I, that I did with the Mad Hatter and Harvey Bullock and it's like Harvey Bullock's last case was like this awful like thing where some kids got some like football team got blown up with a pipe bomb I've read them all it was the it was the name of that one it had a weird name it was it was the last one michael drew before he left before he left dc and went to marvel and it was it was like a four issue one where harvey bullock came back to the you know he was an ex-cop at that point he closed his last case he kind of he had to close his last case but he thought the penguin had done it the whole time and so he was trying to kill the penguin and it turned out it was really the mad hatter and it was like a weird thing where the mad hatter like you know, put one of his brain things in like some kid's baseball cap and got him to go like blow up all of his teammates, <laughs> and uh, and it was had to do with like some, you know, it was I was like drawing from the headlines like those weird things where you, like that girl who had accused that that team of raping her and then it turned out it was all fake, and you know like that there was like yeah. there was a couple of those in the in like the early twentieth century as I recall. Or early 21st century early aughts in the early aughts as we call them yeah um so that was that was always my thing was just like trying to find even with captain america i was sort of doing the same thing i did with sleeper but with just a more heroic character like bring that espionage was it something you're comfortable with doing doing superhero stories as kind of other genres with these characters yeah i definitely was more comfortable in that than when i tried to do them as like straight superheroes mm-hmm. when i had to write like a team book i realized like i had no fucking idea how to do it and that i hated every minute of doing it mm-hmm. but i also think that like i never thought i would write superhero books at all like when i was a kid i totally wanted to draw superheroes but right. once i started writing and drawing my own stuff i was more interested in alternative comics and the superhero thing just came about 
because I was trying to make a living and you know I was writing Batman and I'm like well that's kind of a superhero comic mm-hmm. and then uh, Captain America is really the first like full on superhero comic I ever wrote I feel like and that one you know I played it pretty straight like straight espionage where they just have superpowers sometimes and and that was really fun for me just because that was like my favorite character as a kid like growing up on the navy bases reading Captain America right. it seems like a kind of grayer area it's not as superhero as like say doing the outside yeah he works for yeah he works for shield and he's on missions and he's and he's like jumping out of airplanes and you know right. like the tone of the you know the recent movie the tone of that is totally like what we were doing in the comic mm-hmm. and obviously the bad guys our character um uh oh um yeah, but um, but yeah. So that was you know I was pretty comfortable doing that. It's definitely more comfortable doing that than than trying to just be like Mark Miller or somebody or just trying to trying to be someone who was really successful at it at, at doing that, embracing the superhero part. For me, I always had to embrace some other part and then have the superhero part be also part of it. Right. Well, is that is that world something that you enjoy reading work in at all? Mm, I mean, I did as a kid. I didn't, I didn't read any superhero comics after Watchmen and Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought those were pretty much the last word on superhero comics. And I only started reading them again when I was working in comics. Like, I hadn't read a... Before I started Scene of the Crime, I think, I hadn't read, like, any mainstream comics for a decade, probably. Right, I always imagined that being kind of a trudging thing just to keep up in continuity, having to go through crates of... Yeah, I mean, that can be it. And I'm super research-oriented when I start a project, so, like, I read every Captain America issue until, like, that came before mine. Like, Mm -hmm. I read all the stuff I had as a kid, and I got, like, on eBay and bought, like, whole runs of Captain America. I read Captain America. Yeah, that's about where I was just kind of, like, Cap Wolf. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what's weird is, like, I enjoyed large parts of reading it again, but but I did feel like... You know, the way comics are written now, even the last 10 years, I think the wave of writers who've come into mainstream comics since, like, the late 90s on, like, Warren Ellis and me and Bendis and, you know, Fraction and all these people who came from so many different influences, Mark Miller even and Grant Morrison, like, Mm -hmm. those guys, well, Grant's been around since the 80s, I guess, but their influences that they bring in and the way that they tell the stories is so much more sophisticated than comics from the 70s and the 80s as far as the writing goes. Like, comics that I loved as a kid, I go back and I read and I have to skim everything Mm -hmm. because the dialogue is really overwritten and the narration is saying the same thing that the dialogue is saying. And I feel like there's more of an alt-comic sophistication to the way that a lot of the storytelling, at least the stuff that me and friends of mine did. I don't don't read a lot of it. At this point, I probably buy, you know, five Marvel and DC comics a month, and it's like, you know, Hawkeye and Gillen's stuff and, you know, some of Bendis' stuff. And, you know, mostly, especially since I stopped working for them, Mm -hmm. I just... I stopped working for them because I was just burned out or I was on the verge of being totally burned out, and I felt like... I was forgetting how to end stories. Because you had to set up the next one. Well, not just that, but... Well, part, partly that and partly because the way Marvel's schedule had gotten the last, like, three or four years that I was there was that you had to be working for multiple different artists on the same book. So you'd be writing, like, issue 10 and issue 15 at the same time. So when you're writing first chapter of one story, you have to write the first chapter of the story that comes after it, too. 
So, like, you're writing for two different artists at the same time, writing in five or ten page chunks at a time yeah. to keep them moving. It was really frustrating to try to... It was not. It was, it was difficult, and, and it, it kind of, I feel like it kind of broke me on, on some level, and also I feel like the fact that basically all those stories have to end. I got really lucky on Captain America. I had a good, like, five or six years where I could do anything that I wanted, and I was just doing the comic exactly that I wanted, and then... After Steve Rogers came back, it became more of like a regular superhero comic, and I realized basically the end of every story is people put on costumes and go punch each other, and I was like, that's not, that's not the end of a story. Like that's just people punching each other, and I and I felt like, like that got in my head to the point where it was just no fun to write the comics anymore, and so I was like, right, no I've done this for yeah, exactly, and it's. Like, I got really lucky. I got to do the whole Bucky comes back and becomes, you know, the Winter Soldier and then he becomes Captain America right. saves, you know, the president. Like, I got to do these stories that felt like they had lasting impact and, like, you know, kill the Red Skull and, you know, do the stuff that felt like it really lasted. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't have to ever worry about anyone else's comic but my own. They They only made me just touch on, like, two things, like, crossover-wise, ever. And, you know, I, I only had to deal with Civil War just because Captain America was basically starring in it. So, <laughs> so it was like, it was weird. Like, only three issues of my comic even dealt with it at all. And then, I, and then you know, I got to do the aftermath of Civil War, which turned out to be, like, the biggest selling comic of my entire career, which was the death of Captain America. So, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I think anybody whose work really stands out in that field is always bringing some different influence in, like, you know, Alan Moore bringing in, like, all of his weird literary influences, right. and Morrison the same way, you know, and Warren Ellis bringing in, like, all of his weird techno-futurist stuff mm -hmm. and just a more cinematic way to, to get into the stories. Bendis bringing in, like, the David Mamet crazy dialogue and... You know, Fraction, who I feel like is like the next generation after us, where he's synthesized everything that, that we looked at and all the stuff that that Warren and all these other people right. did. In fact, I, I always feel in some ways that Fraction maybe influenced Warren a little bit. And I think Fraction invented the word kickexplode. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really and, fascinated by him because I think. He seems like this totally new generation of accessibility. Where yeah, <laughs> you know, Warren Ellis comics; those are still nerd comics. Yeah, like regardless Jerry, of yeah. quality or whatever. And you can show sex criminals to people that just watch HBO shows, which I, is bizarre. When Matt told me what sex criminals was going to be like two or three years ago at Emerald City, I was like, "Oh wow, that sounds like I'll like that." Mm -hmm. But I had no idea it was going to be like the biggest success that they had ever had that he's ever had. I was like, "Wow." But it's like, yeah, it's funny. Like, I, yeah, I, I give that comic to people, and they get, like, five pages in, and they're like, there's comics like this? Yeah, Chip's yeah. humor is really fantastic in that. That's yeah. In it. Yeah, all the, all the weird. Yeah, it's like reading old, old mad comics, but aimed at us or something, right. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It is, it is weird. I do feel like my whole, my career has totally run, run the gamut. But, but in a way, it's, you know, I think I was always a writer who drew more than an artist who wrote mm -hmm. in some ways because I always I started writing stories just so I'd have something to draw, mm -hmm. and then I feel like I definitely I never kept a sketchbook like I've never done what you're doing, huh. like I, my whole life I never have sketched I would only just draw panels and draw things to go inside panels. Well, do you keep notebooks? Yeah, I keep tons of yeah my whole. I have, I have a different notebook for every project that I'm working on. What about and, your process? Do you do you do paneling when you? 
Not anymore. When I first started, because I always did feel like I was a pretty good storyteller, like as far as panel composition goes, I just didn't feel like I was actually that good of a drawer. Mm -hmm. But so when I first started, I would do like at the bottom of the page, I would do like the page grid. And then I remember Michael Lark, when I sent the first script for Scene of the Crime, it had those. And he was like, don't do that. That's the fun part. <laughs> it's like the actual drawing is a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> like the fun part is breaking it down and figuring out how the story's going to be told. I do that in Crawford, and the, the guys I work with are really adamant that I do it most of the time. Yeah, there's like, some guys who feel the other way. Yeah, Kerb Busiek apparently did it for Conan. Mm -hmm. When he was writing Conan, um, I can't remember the artist's name. Who Carrie Nord. Yeah, Carrie Nord, yeah. The storytelling was was like the part that took him the, the longest. So Kurt would do these little stick man layouts and it would save him 10 hours a page. Right. So just knowing where to put the characters and then he could just get to it. Does that mean, so does it change with you, with you at all? Different artists, working with different artists, do you do different styles of storytelling at all? Different types of scripts with them? Well, at this point I only work with two artists, so mm -hmm. it's really simple because I know what I'm going to get from each of them. And... But yeah, if I'm working with a new artist, then my scripts are much more detailed. And even with Sean and Steve, I'll indicate when something should be a full tier or a long shot or something because right. you never know. They might read it and be like, oh, this will be a close-up, and I want it to be like a wide shot where they're like an inch tall, full figure kind mm -hmm. of thing. So I'll indicate when stuff like that's important, but most of the time I try to let it be you know, their choice because I trust their instincts at this point. But, but yeah, I mean... It, it's I'm you know I'm lucky that I only work with artists who I know at this point. I mean Sean and I have been working together for 15 years and he still will draw stuff that I'm like wow I can't believe he's that he, good. It's amazing like I remember Sean's stuff before then and kind of wasn't super jazzed by it. Yeah. And it just seems like at some point he just kind of hit this switch and it just like really pushed his own stuff and just. Yeah, he's a real artist. I mean he. He draws every day. He does paintings. He takes life drawing classes still, and you know he's he's a full artist. And you know he does all the design on our books. He's got a degree in design oh, actually, okay. and yeah, he you know I mean every every page of any of our books for the last eight years has been you know overseen by Sean, like mm -hmm. even the text pages and stuff. And you know that one of the things that's that in our you know we in our the back of our books we always have articles or try to have articles every time and Sean will always do these illustrations for it and I'm always amazed he has time to do this he's so fucking fast he could draw the whole book in three weeks oh. it's crazy like he's 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 fast and effing slow and so and I am somewhere in between them but Sean's always harping at me for more pages and 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 uh, so yeah he's just really fast he can do easily a page a day and and he and he loves to take the time then to do like the illustrations because he gets to draw in a different mm -hmm. style. Where did those backups come from? Was that are you trying to, to emulate pulps? Um, I really I wanted criminal when we started criminal. I wanted it to be just an umbrella title for me to do any kind of crime story I wanted to do. I didn't want it to have to be the same characters or the same. I didn't want there to have to be a plot that continued. Mm -hmm. So I wanted whatever stories we did. To just be serialized in the in the magazine, so I wanted Criminal to be like a like a noir magazine that would have like articles about like sort of noir appreciation and short stories and stuff like that. And then I quickly found after a few issues that it was really difficult to find the time to write those articles myself every time. So I started recruiting friends, and then it became this thing that people actually really enjoyed doing. And 
they would, you know, if there were a novelist or something, they'd be reaching a completely different audience, and, you know, and, and we'd write about movies, and, like, I meet people still who only, like, discovered, like, Robert Mitchum because we wrote about Out of the Past or right. something. Like, John Turturro, actually. John Turturro's son, it was, like, a huge comic nerd, and he was a guy on the Bendis board, and when the first or second criminal trade was out, Bendis and I were doing a signing at... Jim Hanley's universe, and he came. He was talking to me. He said, "Yeah, my dad had never heard of, or he'd never been like a big Robert Mitchum fan before." And we watched Out of the Past because I I showed him your comics, and he read this article. And he's like, "Oh, we should watch this movie." And I was like, "Oh, cool." And I was like, "Who's your dad?" And he's like, "Oh, he's an actor." And I was like, "Anybody I would have heard of?" And he's like, "Oh, John Turturro." And I was like, "Are you fucking shitting me?" <laughs> like I turned John Turturro onto Out of the Past, and he's like. And then I talked to someone who worked with them on something else, and apparently he does like a really great Robert Mitchum impression now. <laughs> I was like, wow. But I've never met him, but I was like, we emailed a couple times because of that, so I thought that was kind of cool. But, cool. But yeah, I mean, those articles were, for me, it was just, I was so afraid of trade waiters, and I still am, yeah. that I wanted the single issues especially to have something in them that wouldn't be in a trade. And I used to get flack from people for not collecting the articles in the trade. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't get the end of a Raymond Chandler novel, find a bunch of fucking articles about movies by friends of Raymond Chandler. Right. You know, it's like it has nothing to do with the story that we're telling. They, I feel like it helps create the tone and the world that the comic sort of exists in in a weird way to, yeah. to write about that stuff and educate people about, like, the genre. But... It's more just something that makes people feel like they're part of something better. I think it's kind of like if you buy Criminal or if you buy the stuff that Sean and I do, you're part of like a cool club that supports mm -hmm. us doing that stuff. Because our fan base on that stuff has been incredibly loyal the whole time. I mean, every t every new project we do, like our average sales goes up like 20 or 25% and mm -hmm. just stays there. And a lot of them just you know, when they find out we don't collect those or that they're not in the digital versions, you know, that you have to buy the print version to get it, then you feel like that's the real, this is the thing, if you're a real supporter of this stuff. And I always would write in the issues, like, look, we're doing this because we're like PBS. We survive on how many copies you guys buy. Right. So I'm trying to make all the early adopters, I'm rewarding early adopters instead of saving the extras to do in the trades or the hardbacks. Mm -hmm then, you know, and we don't even reprint most of those articles in, like, our hardbacks or anything, because I, I don't own that stuff. Like, right. uh, my friends do it as a favor. Like, some of them, you know, now I've been, you know, because Jess Nevins has done so much, I actually, like, pay him a little bit to do those, and he's given us permission to reprint a couple of them here and there. But, right. but generally, you know, I just feel like I'm just getting first-time print rights on something and the payment is you get printed in our magazine and Sean does a cool illustration mm -hmm. of your article. And most people are really happy with that. I used to say it pays street cred. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's exposure. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's exposure, guy. What's up, Stephen <laughs> King? You don't want exposure? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, like Sleeper was such a bad-selling comic and I was just desperate to do something that would not get canceled or would make enough money that I could afford to pay Sean to draw it. Because mm -hmm, yeah. for the first several years we were doing Criminal, I only made enough money on it to pay Sean and our colorist. Right. And I was funding it myself. Like, I took out a second mortgage on our Stewart house. Was that Dave Stewart Val Staples at that okay. point. Yeah, Val colored most of the criminals, except for the last half of the last storyline. Hmm. Um, nice work. So yeah. the image has really allowed you 
both to do more and because of that payment structure? Well, that? I think, well, it's not just that. I mean, we were doing really good on the books. By the time I we took Fatal to Image instead of doing it through Icon, we were doing really good on like all the Icon stuff because the trick of making a living in in independent comics is to have a lot of work in print that yeah. continually sells and yeah. each time you put out a new book you sell a little bit more of your back stock and so Sean and I have like 15 books in print all the time and some of them are $50 hardbacks and so you just incrementally sell even if you sell 5,000 copies in a year of 15 different books you're making a lot of money on that yeah. but I mean yeah the image deal is better than the icon deal for us at least I'm, I'm sure there's people who probably have better deals with icon than, than image gives but but like for me, it was just like I wanted to only do my own work, and I didn't want to like when you're when you're working at Icon, it's understood that that's kind of like their favor to you for, for doing the big books for them. them. Yeah, exactly. And so if I wanted to live in a world where I didn't do superhero comics, I needed to make sure that there was a place I could publish the stuff I did want to do. Yeah. And so that's why I took Fatal over to Image before I left Marvel was because I wanted to see like you know, how it would be to publish somewhere else because I'd only known Icon and yeah. it seemed like a pretty good deal to me and Image was offering me a slightly better deal. And like at that point, most Image, like Image wasn't in 2011 what they are now where their books, you know, sell a lot more right. out of the gate. Like yeah. back then, you know, our orders on the first Fatal were nowhere near what they would be if we released it today probably yeah. because... you probably have five variant covers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I just wanted to only do my own stuff, and I thought, well, I have all this material in print. We make we make a good living on our back stock, and you know, if image works out, then you know, we'll we can keep making money from more than one avenue, basically. So it was really just, I was just so tired of all that stuff, and I only wanted to just do my own stuff, and I was just burned out, and I had a movie deal and couple of TV pilots that had been offered to me to write and so I, did, I had been passing up opportunities for five or six years to work in film and TV because I was on contract at Marvel and I had to do a certain amount of writing per month and take on a movie and try to write four or five comics around yeah. it a month it's impossible like it's barely possible to do the two books I do around the outside work mm -hmm. but um, but yeah so so image was really more like I mean, the, the you know, I mean, you're there. Like the the right. thing the thing that I love the most about Image is, I mean, Eric Stevenson is great, but also, I love that Eric Stevenson comes out and talks like tons of smack at these events, because all he's trying to do is generate like hype for Image, yeah. but he's also doing it by trying to point out like everything that Image does is to make its creators rich. Yeah. It's not to make Image rich. When I tried to explain to someone from like Hollywood, how image works. They're like, so where is their end? Right. I mean, and I was like, their end is 20% of the profit on the trades, yeah. which by the way has made them millions of dollars yeah, in the yeah. last was, several years because of Saga and Walking Dead and, you know, like. I was trying to explain to someone like the, the how it is, and people don't really say it, but it's a cooperative. Yeah, it, it really is. is. It's like, totally communist. Like, I mean, they, they make a percentage of the profit but really it's set up to do the, mo the least amount possible to publish a book yeah. for the least amount 
possible and to give all the profit to the people who actually do the work. Yeah. Right, it's like, like set up by creators like it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the United Artists of, of, you know, of comics in a way, but it works. And, you know, it's weird because I looked at Image for 20 years before I got there and I was like, there wasn't much that they published that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Image now has kind of become a thing that Kim Thompson always said needed to exist in comics for comics to become more widely uh, accepted in America, yeah. which is that they needed their, I can't remember, he said it in like a really typically like Kim Thompson-y dismissive kind of way, but he was basically saying comics needs its shit publisher who publishes like like Tom Clancy and stuff like that. Like when you go to the bookstore, the bi- the things that keep bookstores open are Stephen King and Anne Rice and Tom yeah. Clancy and these kind of and comics needs stuff that's actually aimed at real mainstream readers as opposed to only alternative comics and only superheroes. Yeah. And I feel like Image has actually become what Vertigo I think wanted to be, which is a creator-driven company for people who like to read comics. Which is funny because a lot of the reason Vertigo has problems is because yeah. the whole creator ownership thing. Right, they're not willing to, to do that. Well, yeah, and who would, who would there, yeah, it's not real creator ownership if the company owns half and all the control of your product. Yeah. Yeah. Robin reminded me of a, of a snotty thing that I said at the convention <laughs> at Emerald City that I forgot. We were in a Scott Snyder in the elevator. Mm. And, uh, and we're like, what are you up to? And he's like, oh, I'm going to a meeting with Vertigo. And I said, Tell them good luck with their crumbling for their for their crumbling empire. Oh, nice. Yeah, I loved. You were on Twitter uh, a couple days after Image Expo, going back and forth with Will Dennis, and you were like, "Vertigo's never done shit for for in, for helping a creator build their career." And Will was like trying to be polite and go back and forth with you on it, and you were like being reasonable for a minute, and then he's like, "I would love to talk to you more about this offline at some point in private email or something." And you're like, "Yeah, that's nice, man." And then, like ten seconds later, you tweet, "Fuck Vertigo." Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Wow." <laughs> you're. If someone were to meet you after only reading your Twitter, they would like think you're you're like pretending to be you or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like your Twitter is is so much like that, which well, was totally cracking me up. It's all set in a cold, deadpan. Yeah, see? <laughs> but the internet doesn't get that across all the time. But I just, yeah. I was like, having just like hung out with you for days, I was like, oh, he's fucking with him. <laughs> he's like pretending to be reasonable for a minute and then just going back to the old man rant. Fuck yes. Vertigo, they've never done shit for Grant. Well, I like, wanted to be reasonable, but I didn't want to give him, because it's difficult, yeah. because I, I obviously have a chip on my shoulder about that stuff, but at the same time, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I Heavy Liquid's an amazing comic. Yeah, I'm glad that came out. I don't think it would yeah. come out without them. Um, you know, there's a bunch of books like that, but yeah, but there's when some good stuff that the they've published. Yeah, um, you know, because I don't know. Did they did they give you a chance there? Was it something that, or was it something that you? Well, could, the thing I noticed about Vertigo at the time was Vertigo is very interested in what Vertigo is doing. Right. Yeah. And they, I think they thought and still. May, probably don't think anymore because of image and, and people like me and other people tell, mm-hmm. talking to them about it. They thought that they had like the best creator deal in comics by right. giving the creator but it's copyright, the but they would trademark the book to DC and DC would really own half of it yeah. and would own all the media rights and everything. And you'd get a piece of it if DC sold it or something. But you'd always hear those stories about like Kyle Baker getting offered a million dollars for why I hate Saturn and DC sells it for a thousand dollars somewhere instead. Yeah. So, yeah, 
I mean, and, and I can verify that those stories are not not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are, they are mm-hmm. in fact, true. Especially with Kyle. Like, it's not like he's rolling in the dough. Yeah, and that was, like, right when that happened. And he ended up getting, like, a movie producer job out of that for a few years and, like, living right. on the, like, working on the lot at Warner Brothers or somewhere. But, um... There's such a knock to comics to be, like, let's... <laughs> you know, can't... One of the best, you know, cartoonists out there can't quite pull it in comics as well as he can do in other mediums. Yeah. It's... Well, I mean, Kyle Winker's always pointing out that comics doesn't know how to make money out of Bugs Bunny. Like, there's something wrong yeah. when, the, when the comics industry can't sell Bugs Bunny to children. And it's like, well, yeah, they just don't know where children are. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering when you are talking about stuff before about it. Because you are talking about multiple pitches at Vertigo and... Oh, yeah. And, um... That was like the mid nineties. Like was there a point when you 95. felt like the there wasn't much editorial and wasn't much? Was there like a breaking point where you stopped having to do pitches and just got to be able to do the work that you're oh, excited about? No, no that that happened at Wildstorm. Wildstorm, okay. I could turn in a one page pitch, mm-hmm. but like the pitch for Dead Enders just kept getting longer and longer. I would turn it in and I would get notes on the pitch from so, from Karen and Shelley. Oh, right. Mostly Karen. I had a I had to go in for a meeting and met with Karen for like an hour and a half to go over what the comic was going to be. It was so hard to get a comic greenlit back then. Right, and was it were they changing anything, or were they interested in just you giving them a very clear idea about what you wanted to do? Um, mostly, I think it was just trying to sell them on what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I never got like notes like this should be this or this should be that. I mean, occasionally when you when I would be talking to Shelley about doing stuff, she would be like can't it be a girl and can't she be in a band and you know <laughs> and that was like that David Lapham comic that he did for her with the transvestite in it I can't remember what it was called it was like a couple years ago he wrote oh. and drew it for like oh, yeah. 12 issues or something that, just that was like the ultimate Shelley Vertigo comic oh, that was rough was, that was the thing where I was like is this really the straight bullets guy yeah it was very I saw I saw Shelley's like influence on that in a way because it was so much about like the club scene right. oh, all this stuff that she's always been really fascinated with herself and Shelly's actually a, a good writer in her own right yeah. so she's just kind of ended up you know now she runs Vertigo but um, I, mean, I think I think for for people who were trying to make a living in comics mm-hmm. like getting work at Vertigo back then was probably such a big deal especially if you were someone who was doing most of the, those artists like if they could get regular paying work it was going to be on like some like backup story in house of mystery or something right. it wasn't like you know any of the superhero the books i know i was like any of the any of the superhero books didn't you know like you were they weren't going to hire the guys who drew sandman really right. you know and so i think vertigo was a really big thing for they people who weren't alternative and they weren't really mainstream and so i think that in the market at least, and for writers it was probably incredibly freeing to think, I can write something that's not a superhero and get paid and keep half ownership. So that deal probably felt really good for a long time, you know? And then it was just, I think when Wildstorm started offering better deals to people, like Wildstorm deals would be like 30% ownership to the creators, but... So was there, from Wildstorm to Icon, was there even more freedom at Icon and then at Image? Oh, yeah. Or was it... Yeah, at, at Wildstorm, we turned in pages and dealt with an editor and image, got notes occasionally. I can't imagine you pitched anything at Image. No. Well, I mean, I'd tell Eric I want to do this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, now our contract like... is such that I don't have to even tell him that. I just yeah. send in a solicitation with the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'd be like, we're doing this this month, and it's like, you can't say no. We have yeah. a contract. Not that they would anyway, but like Icon, 
At ICON, I had to pitch. Mm -hmm. Like at ICON, I had to send a proposal for a criminal and a proposal for incognito, outlining how many issues it would be and et cetera. And right. but I still, you know, ICON was when we first started. Just we had just turned in print ready books, and Marvel would just pay for the printing and take care of printing and distribution and you know whatever cut they took and give the rest to to us. So that was definitely like the double-edged sword of freedom where it's like, it's great, but it wouldn't be bad occasionally to have someone reading this thing over before it goes to print. Right. You know, so like, I like that, that I have that at image now, like Drew and David brothers, mm -hmm. both sort of proofread our books while they're almost to the printer and Drew Gill will go in and like fix lettering errors and fix typos and always run everything by me first oh, yeah, to make really sure good. I didn't want to misspell that word on purpose mm -hmm. but because dialogue you never know you yeah know. this goes over my profit script and it's hilarious because <laughs> nonsense words endlessly and so yeah you send me are just like it's just need this many z's and <laughs> yeah i had an editor at at wildstorm who i really like she's a scott's assistant editor but she like got in a big argument with me about about uh, the word past once she mm -hmm. was like you're, you spelled it wrong, it's supposed to be P-S-A-T, and I'm like, no, it's P-A-S-S-E-D. Like, went back and forth about it for like half an hour, mm -hmm. and I was like, I can't believe you're arguing with me about this. Like, <laughs> like, like I'm, the, I'm the writer here, <laughs> like, but, um, but yeah, so edit, editorial is, is uh, I don't know, if you work with the right person, Tom Brevoort was actually the best editor for like story editing. Like when I first started working on Captain America, I would talk to Tom about like the next six issues and sort of tell him what was going on and tell him if I was stuck on something and he'd start suggesting villains or some twist and I and that would even if I wouldn't use the thing he suggested, it would spark some other idea that would take me down the right path. Mm, and that just sounds good. So yeah, I mean that kind of editor is a lot of fun to have and you know I have a lot of friends who are writers that if I am stuck on an idea I'll call up. I remember needing some someone to hear me on like I, I can't remember it was the the first issue of the criminal story that was like three 40 page issues or mm -hmm. something and I was halfway through the first one and I felt like it was sucking and I called up Jason Aaron and just sort of said can I talk to you about this story and just talk to him for like an hour and talk through it and he's like well, that sounds great why don't you just write that and I was like oh okay hmm. I guess I just needed to hear from someone else that this wasn't just you know, the most obvious thing ever. Because <laughs> to me, it felt like this is a really obvious story. Is there much back and forth with the artists you work with on that? Um, Sean never wants to know what's coming ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And Steve is pretty much the same way. Steve just wants the scripts. And, you know, he's he's never asked me to, like, set anything in a specific location. I never keep anything in one location for too many pages because I feel mm -hmm. like that might get boring for an artist, especially when it's people walking around and talking. Yeah. You know, and I always feel like it's good to move locations. I think about that stuff. Steve and Sean are such different artists. Like, Sean is incredibly comfortable with nine to seven panels a page. And Steve, four and five, four or five is, you know, where his real comfort zone is for what he's really good at. But I can write a nine panel page if it's going to be all, like, close-ups of people fighting, and he'll really get into that. So it's interesting. When you work with someone for a long time, you, you, you get to know what they're good at. But then you also get to a point where you're probably both bored with what the other person does. So that's why I always try to change up like the projects and change up how I write things and then start to try to 
be like, well, you know, we've done a lot of four panel pages. Let's do some nine panel pages and see what Steve does or what Sean does. And, <laughs> right. and they always, I, and I'm always finding that if I challenge them, like, oh, let's write some double page spreads for Sean. We've never done double page spreads. And it's like the best pages he's done in years when he does them. So, um, like, stuff like that is, is really, I, I, I like long-term collaboration because of that. Because you, you get so familiar with someone that, you know, you have to remind yourself not to take them for granted for one thing, but also like you can start to push each other in a weird way where, you know, for me, I just always want to keep the artists happy and, and interested. And, you know, but I also, I, I get aware sometimes that some of them do sell their art and they want like nice pages and not just, you know, 12 panels of close-ups of faces or something. <laughs> so I think about that stuff a lot, but I think I've always had a really easy time working with artists. I think partly because I used to be a cartoonist, so when I write the scripts for them, it's right. similar to how I wrote scripts for myself mm -hmm. with just a little bit more detail. And I, you know, I will indicate sometimes this is in the foreground, this is in the background. And, and I think I think of the page more like a cartoonist maybe in that, because I've never had an artist tell me that they don't understand what to, how to draw my scripts, mm -hmm. but I've talked to a lot of artists who've worked with writers where they're like, oh, you can't believe what the script looks like when mm -hmm. I get it. Like, it just, it's, you know, it's like tons of, de like Alan Moore, I can't understand how anyone would draw an Alan Moore script. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, Dave Gibbons would highlight the parts he needed to do, and Eddie Campbell would black out everything uh -huh. but the one sentence well, yeah, he cared well, about. <laughs> yeah, if you had like th three or four different options of how to do the page, Yeah, and then, and then it would be followed up with, or whatever you want to do. Yeah, exactly, just highlight that part. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's an it's an interesting thing. I feel like you know I'm so aware of comics. Like I, I was listening to your podcast with Tom, and um, like Tom was talking about how much you know we all used to just talk about comics all the time. And and I definitely at that point I'd been published for about a year or two, and those guys were just doing their mini comics and stuff. And I would just push them and and like give them advice that they didn't want and. I was really pushy back then. Like I was the one who told John Lewis that he had to do a regular recurring character and that he needed to start taking more time on his art. And I was really yeah, I pushy with those guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he learned to be a, such a great brush anchor. And like when I first looked at his stuff, he was just doing everything with tech pens and drawing his pages were like this big and the uh -huh. lettering was bigger than the people. And he was really, you know, but I thought he was like one of the most amazing cartoonists I'd ever met. Like I'd read his things and just laugh my ass off, and mm -hmm. him and Tom both. So I really just wanted to help them figure out a way to make their stuff more accessible to people who weren't, you know, the 25 people buying their mini comics. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I've always, you know, I think because I, since I was a little kid, I just always wrote and drew my own comics. Like it just feels like a really natural language to me. And like I, I, I think, you know, I'm sure I'll always write comics. Every now and then, I wonder if I'll ever try to draw comics again. And then I start doodling. I'm like, oh fuck this! <laughs> I, I used to imagine that I would like secretly do my own little little cartoony like weekly strip for some newspaper or something. But I'm like, no, that's way too much work. You could secretly put out your asterisk follow up in ten years. Yeah. <laughs> it, was it, it must have been 20 years he was working on that book. Oh, yeah, I, and, and lying to people apparently the whole time about if he was working on anything, probably just to take the brush. Oh, really? Yeah. I met him once in 1999, and he said he was halfway done with a graphic novel. I think he had a lot of false starts, too. Yeah, probably, yeah. But you look at that book, and it's so insane. Mm. Yeah, and then Richard McGuire has here coming out this year. Who? Richard McGuire. 
He did this comic called Here in Raw Magazine. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And so Pantheon's putting out, like, a full-length, like, two-page. Is that, like, here two, 20 years ago? I was wondering what those people do for a living. I mean, I know Mazzucchelli just makes money on Batman, so so I'm pretty sure that Batman Year One is, like, basically a lifetime, you know, stipend. Well, that was interesting. Sells, like, 100,000 to 200,000 copies a year still. He deserved so, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally it would be better it. for comics in general if a guy like Mazzy Kelly had to work a day continuously working comics as it is. Get... I miss, yeah, I miss his stuff. I, w- I was buying Rubber Blanket and yeah. excited about it at the time. I thought it was incredibly pretentious. I remember I was like the only person in the world who I bought Ostrich Paul up. I had started flipping through it and I was like, I don't know, I feel like I might, t- might be 10 years too old to actually read this at this point. Mm. Like the 25 year old me who, like, uh-huh met David Mazzucchelli and was super excited about what he was working on would have like killed to read this book and I was like this is a really good book I think it's a lot I don't more feel just than than the rubber blanket though too oh yeah I th- yeah I, I remember thinking that that one rubber blanket story with the the map maker thing where he like oh, yeah. crawls on the double H I like the art was so amazing but I also was like this is so pretentious at mm-hmm. the time even I was like I don't know man this is very like on the nose. I was like a movie critic at the time, so I had been sitting through like festival after festival of like wannabe Hal Hartley movies, and it was just like at that point my eyes just started glazing over, and I was like, "Give me a diehard knockoff, <laughs> something that's not trying to be art, because something that's trying to be art and failing is so much worse than something that's trying to be diehard and failing." <laughs> you know? I, I definitely liked his the. Um... Lost the city glass. Oh my God, city Along glasses! Like, yeah, I have I have my original copy of that up in Seattle still. The very the first printing. Where, where it was the Japanese people? The Japanese. Oh, the hair nude uh, thing. Yeah, obsessed with uh, with pubic hair. Yeah, yeah. Must, it was called yeah. Stop the Hair Nude. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because he went to Japan for like six months mm-hmm. on like a fellowship for Kodansha or something. Yeah. 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 I remember. Did Did you ever Did you talk to Tom about his Japanese comics? Yeah, Tom was, and John did like a Japanese version of Hutch Owen and John wrote them yeah, and Tom drew yeah. them. I think we may have. And then oh, was John okay. J. Muth over there and Paul Pope at the same time, I think. Paul Pope, we knew we knew Paul. I didn't know John J. Muth at all, but we yeah, knew Muth Paul had gone over there to do work. Yeah, these Japanese editors came to Seattle to try to like recruit cartoonists and we that was the first time I ever went to karaoke actually. <laughs> was with these editors from Kodansha and we were all into Garo. Right. <laughs> the, the fanographics of manga, oh, yeah. basically, you know, it was like all the weird arty, arty yeah. manga, and we couldn't read any of it because it was how all. How were you even seeing that then? It was at Kanokanaya. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they would. We would go down to Kanokanaya once a month and oh, buy yeah. our copies of Garo for like five dollars or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, my Megan Kelso's husband, uh, Mike Buckley, is like one of my oldest friends in the world, and mm-hmm. we used to be roommates in San Diego. He's actually a character in Low Life. Okay. Um, and uh, he was super into Japanese culture and he'd actually studied Japanese and stuff and so he had like every issue of Garo like mm-hmm. if we if I missed one I could just go to his house and flip through it and it was great to see like Japanese cartoonists influenced by weird European art comics and like oh, yeah. Matoti and you know just all this stuff that we had loved growing up mm-hmm. were you picking up any other stuff that you think of any of them? uh I would get if it was in English. Like I only, I'm, you know, the first time I ever understood when you, you know, when you give comics to people who don't read comics and they mm-hmm. tell you they don't understand how to read it. Like the first time that ever happened to me was when someone gave me a Japanese comic that was printed Japanese style, even wait. though it was translated, and I was like, wait, I read right to left. Like I'm still like, 
I have all my old Nausicaa's that are from the late 80s when they were re when they were printed in English format when it was like flipped and they had to cut and paste the panels and stuff to make it work but but like I am still like I can only read Japanese comics when they're printed English format like left to right I just I, I can't lose myself in a comic like the same thing with digital I can't lose myself in a digital comic I just don't care I'm sitting there and it's like I can't my concentration is not the same for when I'm like lying on the couch with a piece of paper or sitting in the bathtub with a comic. My friend does a thing where I forget which direction comics go because I read so many Japanese comics. In yeah, I feel like I'm totally missing out, by the way. Like, I do feel like I've tried to read a lot of, like, a friend of mine gave me all the drifting classrooms, which are supposed mm -hmm. to be great. They're and I just amazing. can't get in it. I can't get into it. Yeah, like, 13 books but I love kids like, yelling and screaming. Yeah, but I love, like, Hell Baby and, like, all these old things that would yeah. that were coming out in the early 90s in the American format. Well, I feel like, like, have you, have you gotten any Urasawa stuff at all? Who's that? He's, uh, he did 20th Century Boys and Pluto and all these things. Is that... Is 20th Century Boys black and white? Yeah. Is that yeah. what that is? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I have oh, Tech no, no, on Black Kincrete. and white. That's, that's a different guy. Yeah, Tech on Kincrete. Yeah, no, 20th yeah. Century Boys is... Um, well, Pluto is easier to explain. It's basically um, a readaption of, a, of an Astro Boy comic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen that, but I haven't actually read it. Is that, like, actually just... He's just redoing Astro Boy. He's. It's interesting because he's redoing it from a different character's perspective, and it's a it's a robot cop's perspective. Is it licensed? Yeah, it was. Oh uh, wow, that's totally crazy. And it, it's really fascinating. I feel like it's kind of in line with some of your work and how it's it's so plot based. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> I never thought of myself as plot based though. That's what's funny. Well, I, I, I guess I feel like there's but. two types of crime or mystery stories you get like the Chandler stuff yeah a meandering no plot based yeah that's kind of what I'm veering more towards now I yeah. think is like the who cares who done it mm -hmm. stories but yeah I guess you're right yeah I definitely always made sure that the story's tied up but I always thought of it as just the plot is just a vehicle to talk about the characters right but yeah I definitely you know Chandler famously didn't know who did things even like it wasn't that he didn't care who did it he just didn't know yeah I saw <laughs> Somebody showed me a map recently of uh, all the characters from, I forget what it was, one of his one of his stories that was adapted into a movie, and there was one character in there that, it was the driver. Uh, oh yeah, that's for the big sleep. Yeah. yeah. And, and just, he's the most important character in the thing, and he's dead through yeah, the whole movie. And they can't figure out who killed him, and they asked Chandler at one point, and he was like, oh. Yeah, Faulkner called him up when he was working yeah. on the script, and asked him, and he's like, I don't fucking know. Because it was like a <laughs> mashup of five short stories, yeah. too. If you want to see something funny, like open this, open this, mm -hmm. and then oh, you can't because of this. This is uh, my uncle wrote this movie. This is the the actual script oh, wow. for uh, what became uh, Murder My Sweet, which was Fair oh, nice. the book of Fair White Lovely. But this is like his actual typed script oh, wow. for. This is the outline. This is like something you and find in a in a murder mystery it's like yeah but you can see this is his <laughs> voucher when he, when he turned in the script this is the voucher to get paid from RKO pictures all of his plans yeah but yeah my uncle was like a big noir screenwriter which oh, is awesome. I think partly why I grew up watching noir films because my dad was super into them was uncle. your was your uncle around at all? we would come up like once or twice a year from San Diego when I lived there as a kid to go to like Disneyland and stuff and visit them. But they were much older. Like my it was my dad's mm -hmm. half sister and her husband, so she was twenty years older than him. She's still alive actually. She mm -hmm. lives in Hawaii now. She's like hundred and two and has no wow. 
yeah, it's not you can't talk to her or anything. She's totally senile. She, but if I if I can get her on the phone or or when I used to go visit sometimes like a couple of years ago before she moved, I would go visit and get old Hollywood stories from her because she was like one of the heads of PR at, at uh, 20th Century. Well, it was I think it was just Fox at, at that point in like the late 30s, and he was a big screenwriter from like the 40s through the 70s. Yeah. Do you ever so, pay attention to uh, Cliff Nesteroff's writing? I don't know who that is. He's um, writes about like old Hollywood stuff for WFMU. Oh really? Oh, um, I should know that. Yeah, um, he does like he did the thing about uh, I think it was like Cary Grant's LSD usage. Oh fuck! I should really know this person. Yeah, he oh, yeah. he's former Vancouver writer. He actually moved down to Hollywood. He oh, just okay. Did a thing wow. with the guy that did laugh in. Oh. The other wow. night at Cine Family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to hook up with him because, yeah, for the fade out, the new thing that Sean and I are doing, all the backup articles are going to be like stories of crazy Hollywood stories from the 40s and 50s. Oh, he's and perfect. He's Yeah, I have yeah. Devin Faraci who pitched me like three different ones that are all great. And I was like, oh, yeah, those are all like the girl who committed suicide by leaving off the H in the Hollywood land sign. <laughs> it was like an actress. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the story I need. But yeah, I hired a, I think I told you, I hired the re, this research assistant for, oh, maybe I didn't mention no. Yeah, I hired a research assistant for uh, the fade out, who's this mm. woman, she's, she's the manager of the LA Police Museum, and she's just a 40s Hollywood expert, basically, and she's got tons of, resources already but she's been putting together this dropbox folder for sean for photo reference and it's all like it's organized like neighborhoods oh, wow. uh movie stars normal people cars guns movie studio lots what the you know what did a movie camera look like like so it's basically i think or at this point it's over a thousand pictures and she hasn't been working for like a week it's neat when and you... it's amazing like it's oh. gonna be the most realistic depiction of 40s LA and Sean's going back to drawing like 10 by 15 for this project oh. so like it's taking much longer to draw which is awesome for me but, so is, but this, is this a fatal this is after fatal we're doing this thing called the fade out that's the thing I showed you the, the cover okay, for right, yeah. the, the movie poster or the movie magazine cover mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's all a story that takes place in late 40s Hollywood that's sort right. of loosely inspired by my uncle and aunt's like lives a little bit like there's a character in it based on her and mm. the main character like my uncle's best friends were all the hollywood 10 like his best friend was adrian scott who was the producer of that movie and right. like five other movies my uncle he went to prison for being a commie and, <laughs> and one of his other best friends was dalton trumbo and you know so the, like all of the people he worked with basically got sent to prison for being commies and he just was right. apolitical so he got to keep working right. but like most of you know he, he had this great part of his career and then suddenly the blacklist hit yeah. and all the people he was working with were fucked and you know he had to get through that and he was pretty bitter about hollywood i think but yeah, but i always you know would hear these stories from my aunt and uncle about hollywood back then so it's always been like part of in the back of my mind i wanted to do a story that took place there so I'm never gonna have a better opportunity than with this deal where I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> like, because if you pitch, that's gonna be a comic about '40s Hollywood. Everyone would be like, uh. <laughs> like, "Oh no, it's this." I'm gonna write down uh, Cliff's name for you because oh yeah, please, he yeah. Does, he did this uh, one article about um, all the comedy clubs that are run by mobsters. Oh wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There was a guy who owned a comedy club down here who tried to embezzle a bunch of shit from my aunt a couple years ago. So yeah. Oh, cool.
Wow, that's a crazy spelling of cliff. Yeah, thirty-seven Ks in it. Yeah, thirty-seven Ks. So even stuff like Fatal, I'm interested in if that feels kind of like the superhero stuff where you're taking horror and and, and backing it with something else like you're doing with. You know, more it just felt like because I'm not I'm not much of a horror reader or or viewer. Like I get scared at movies really easily. I'm still like when I watch a horror movie, if someone reaches in from off camera and grabs somebody, I still jump. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's literally like I could I had to turn on the lights to watch The Conjuring, and I'm like, like so. I think it was really just trying to add like a little bit of a supernatural element to the kind of thing I already did, mm -hmm. and I looked at it too like. Horror and noir both grew out of the pulps. Like Lovecraft was in one pulp, and Dashiell Hammett was in the in the one right next to it. And right. I thought, why didn't someone ever just do something with like by shoving those two together? Right. And you know there has been I like mean, clearly you've never seen cast a deadly spell, the straight to video. Yeah, <laughs> I you know someone sent me uh, 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 like a burned a copy of that on me. It was like, mad at you. No, they were just, they just thought I would like it. Yeah, it was like no, Dennis like Hopper, right? Uh, who was, was it? I think Everybody Dennis Hopper was in one. They made a series of them. Yeah, they were, they were made, I was so excited oh. about them when I saw the ad sport and then the reality of them. It was about a... It was uh, like Lovecraft he, with a private eye, right? Yeah, Love, Lovecraft yeah. was the only private eye in Los Angeles who refused to use magic. Yeah, so. that's right, yeah. And there was that um, Clive Barker thing where it was like the guy from Quantum Leap was like a private eye. Oh, know, yeah. With like mysticism. He's Scott Bakula. TV Scott Bakula, yeah, and Famke Jansen was like the wife of some dead magician, who was really like there was some satanic cult thing oh, going yeah, on. Oh yeah, the in that. Uh, and Angel Heart, of course, is like the best. Phoenix. Yeah, X Men's Phoenix, yeah, but Angel Heart is like the best example of that, where oh, someone took noir movie. and and yeah, noir and the devil. And you get to see one of the Huxtables naked. Yeah, the the one that you want to. <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of them you don't want to. Definitely, Lisa Bonet was at that point the rounds. only Huxtable. Yeah, wasn't that was... the one that like ruined her? She got kicked out of a different Cosby. world because of that. Yeah, she got kicked out. Did I think she quit a different world to try to become a movie star? I think you're because Cliff because because uh, she had to she had to show Bill Cosby the movie. She hit such rock bottom after that that she had to date Lenny was, Kravitz. Yeah, I was gonna say I think the Lenny Kravitz <laughs> thing. Well, at that point he was known as Romeo Blue. Was he really? Yeah. I remember the first picture of the two of them together. It was Lisa Bonet with her boyfriend Romeo Blue, which was yeah, like his fake stage name at the time. Name. I know, isn't it? <laughs> but I always stuck in my head for like thirty years. Right. Really sad. But um, but yeah. So Fatal was more. I mean, Fatal is such a an exploration of that woman. I think mm -hmm. to me, like, and also an exploration of the way like culture treats women and the way men look at women and the way sex affects people's brains and it was really just me trying to find a way to flip the story of the femme fatale to where she was the sympathetic lead mm -hmm. because I thought it's so it's so overdone the the sexy woman who makes a man murder somebody and it right. you know, ruins his life and I just wanted to do something that would humanize that. And Is that something that you're, you're messing with in Velvet as well? I guess. I actually had the idea for Velvet before I came up with Fatale. Hmm. Like, Velvet was, was kind of inspired by watching a bunch of, like, old spy movies like Bond and, and, like, Flynn and all that stuff and just hating the way the women were treated and 
hating the way Money Penny like act, acted like some idiot fawning over James Bond, and I thought Money Penny's the right hand to the guy who runs MI6. Right. She's got to be the smartest fucking person at that agency. Mm-hmm. Like, and I just thought, oh, the best way to view that is if she's just putting on an act, and all the double O agents think that she's just this dumb fawning secretary. So that was kind of where that grew out of. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of what you do, especially when you're working in genre, like you want to flip the genre. Like when you did Profit, like you don't want to just do what Profit was before. You're like, right. I want to do what if Profit was done in heavy metal in 1978. Yeah, you want to make you it know. feel like if all this stuff was passed through you and yeah, exactly. Your life. And so when I, whenever I look at anything, especially when you, when I'm dealing with a genre that's been done a lot like espionage or, or noir, I'm always trying to find a way to add something different to it that mm-hmm. makes it stand apart instead of because otherwise they'll just end up being really cliche stories. Right. Because ultimately, if you just look at the plot of those things, they're all very A B C. Like drove me crazy. Like I, I try not to read reviews, but you always end up reading some anyway. Mm-hmm. And I remember after the second Fatal arc ended, there were a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but a, a few people who I thought should have been smarter, sort of complaining that this that the end of the second one was almost the same as the end of the first one. And I was like, well, yeah, purposefully. Right. And also, like you missed the key thing about it was the way she reacts to the end of a very similar story is different. Right. And I was like, wow, like, I, I feel like the, I mean, especially the internet reviewing is Have you heard people send you bad reviews? Because I'm always surprised by that. Oh, on Twitter, yeah. yeah. People Here's tweet at you. Your book. Yeah, well, people tweet, go, I just reviewed the new at Brubaker comic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I used to click on the link. And I remember well, clicking on the link once and I was, like, reading it. And I, and, I, and I replied back to the guy and I said, just for future reference, when it's a shitty review, you can leave my name off of the, right. You don't have to tweet it at me. Uh-huh. Like, in the old days, when we gave people bad reviews, we didn't send it, send it directly to them, too. <laughs> By the way, here's what I think of you, a piece of shit. Yeah. Comics but, journalism is such a weird, fucked up thing because... Half the time, it's folks that want to like find a way to get into comics. Well, yeah, most of it. I think everybody reading or buying comics wish, wants to be doing comics. Instead, I wish that we could go back to like a mass audience where every single person who didn't, who 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 supported it, didn't also wish that they could do it. But I think that's everything, though. That's probably rock and roll and movies, and like nobody's sitting in the movie theater going, "God, I'm so glad I don't work in movies." <laughs> Except for people who've worked in movies. <laughs> but but it does like. You know, I remember thinking the first time I ever saw like a punk rock band play, and I'm like, I could do that. And I was like, Yeah, I could do that because it's like two chords. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, yeah, it's a, it's something for myself because like I have no interest in making comics. But you're like legitimately just a fan of the medium. Yeah, just interested. In I have a great day job. I love what I do as a day yeah. job, and this is just you know, and See, so that's... like. We need more of you. Can you can you clone yourself like mo- a million times? Most college journalists <laughs> hate me anyways because I called shit. Yeah. Well, I think it's not just it's not just comics journalists though. I think it's yeah. just journalists at this point. I mean, if you look at if you go to like any like Vulture AV Club or any of these places and you look at like reviews of stuff, if you look at like the worst TV show that's on that they review, you'll notice that they're constantly giving it like B pluses or A minuses anyway. And you're like, wait, why is Grey's Anatomy getting like, a, <laughs> you know, why is Scandal even being reviewed? Yeah. And, and that's the thing too. It's like, that used to be a fun game to play as you talk about 
a comic that's universally hated by your group of friends, and you can always find decent reviews of it or no reviews of it sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not a challenge or something, and it's always weird if somebody's going to be like, you know, this is an awful comic that nobody likes, let's review it. Yeah, so I can remember like being that. that way, and it's just, it's a, it's something that you're, you're supposed to grow out of, I think, that mm-hmm. sort of... I also, as somebody who's always created stuff their whole life, like, I always drew, and I always wrote, and I always made, like, my own Super 8 movies, and, you know, and I, and then I was publishing comics, and I, I've always done stuff, but I've also been a critic, like, I was a movie critic at The Stranger for years, that was how I paid my rent, was just writing these little reviews, and it was easy to write a review of a movie you hated, it was easy to write a movie, review of a movie you loved, it was almost impossible to review something you just kind of felt like, yeah. that was pretty good, yeah. you know, and so I realized early on like I this is not what I want to do but now when I look at criticism sometimes I just I just feel like kind of this Martin Mc I, I heard an interview with Martin McDonough and he was talking about notes from the studios because he they he sent out in Bruges like his, his agent sent out in Bruges when he wanted to get it made and they got offers from six different studios and his agent was like which one do you want and he's starting to go through how much the offers are and he's like oh I don't care about the money just take whoever doesn't have any notes like whoever doesn't, whoever will just let us shoot what I what the script is, yeah. and and Elvis, it was like being interviewed by Elvis Mitchell or someone, and he's like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, you're getting notes from like a movie studio executive. What have they ever written? Right. Yeah. And I kind of feel that way. Like like there's a certain thing, and it's and it's it can't it existed before the internet. It was from it was in zines. It was in the comics journal. It was in like any magazine that reviews anything that you like. There's this sort of snarky snide pride in their opinion of like I've never seen any artist be as smug about their work as a critic is about their review of that work (laughs) like you know what I mean like there's a smugness to certain you know cultural criticism like and I just think well what have you fucking done like what you know don't be smug about your review of like Rosemary's Baby or something like that's a fucking masterpiece you know like oh you're smugly dismissive of someone else's work like there's people who review stuff online that I read like review one of my friend's comics and I'm just like wow if someone said this to my face about my friend's comic I would punch them probably well on the flip side of that have you ever read any any reviews of your stuff that's given you ideas or other people's stuff I would definitely say probably not I've read good reviews of movies that have made me like seek out other movies or or seek out more writing by that critic because I feel like they really understand that art form yeah I don't think I've ever the the weird thing is like the bad reviews are are the ones usually like the, the reviews that, that I hate are the ones where the reviewer saw the, the problems in it that I saw too. Mm. Oh, because yeah. you're like, yeah, he's right. That is a pretty weak moment. <laughs> the truth mm. hurts. Yeah. yeah, the truth definitely hurts. But it's not like they're telling you something you didn't know. They're, oh, just, yeah. they're just confirming for you that all your other audience just happened to just overlook that one thing. There's <laughs> <laughs> a, really, a really horrible bad review where somebody misses the point is some of the most fun you can have sometimes too. Yeah, see... I, I guess I don't know. You're you're at a you're at a different part of your career than me. I've had enough of those. I've had enough of those now. Where it really has to be on a level of like that guy who's like making a video of himself tearing like a, tearing that Hawkeye comic up or whatever the Bendis comic. Like while there's music playing, it's like slow motion ripping of like that's the stuff that really amuses me. Is nice. like the people. That's not that's not the guy that ate it, is it? No, that's um, 
not Seneca. Well, it was I need a, more eating of coffee. Like it was, it was a Grant Morrison. Someone, book. Jesse, someone. I can't remember. He was a guy. He sent a he sent a death threat to someone too, and had the FBI show up at his that house. Was yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, that was. I think that was part of it too. When I was doing Captain America, and we suddenly got a bunch of death threats from the from the Tea Party over an issue of Captain America, I kind of. Stopped finding people's reactions to my oh, work yeah, as amusing. Yeah, and, 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 <laughs> and I'm in a nice position where I don't, you know, when you do when you do your own comics, it's like you know, usually people I imagine read, oh, tell yeah. it's like they like you, and they read it, or they don't care and pay attention to it. Yeah, you don't get those people like that are huge Captain America fans that. Yeah, generally, I feel I feel like the mainstream part of my audience, like I carried over probably ten or fifteen percent of the of those kind of readers to new stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, like I, you know, the, that Captain America movie that's out is selling a lot of my books to people, and right. and some of those people are then finding the other stuff that I do. Thank God, you know, but but not that I'm ashamed of the Captain America stuff. But I'm proud of that stuff, but um. Yeah, what, what mystifies me sometimes if I look to see reaction to something is people who are like, oh, this isn't as good as Sleeper, this isn't as good as Criminal, like, but then they give it like a 9 out of 10, yeah. and I'm like, but there's there's like some sites where they give things like point rewards too, like 7.3 <laughs> 7. and 9.8. Yeah. So how do you come up all with this rubric? Like, what's, what's your, yeah, what's exactly. your marker for also, the points? Also, you realize that's, now you're just doing a 1 to 100 scale, right? Like, that's right. not, there is no, you know. I don't think I've ever put a value on a review. It's just like, here's what I think yeah. about it. Well, like, it's a really it's, weird thing to do in general because well, have you ever like read a good review of your stuff that's made you feel a little bit better about yourself? Like, you saw that you're like, oh, the new issue of, of you know, King City got a 9.9 on IGN. Yeah, well, David Brothers, when he wrote reviews about it, he was very nice to me. Yeah, David Brothers is a smart, yeah, is yeah, a smart Yeah, he reviewer. would say nice things and, and critical things in ways that were thought-provoking. Yeah, David Brothers is somebody who, who, who writes stuff that makes me actually, like, sometimes just email him to talk about, like, whatever he's talking about. Not yeah. necessarily my own work, but just in general. Mm-hmm. And, um... That was kind of why I wanted him to work on my stuff because I thought I also I liked the idea that him going to work at Image because I felt like a lot of his views of the comics industry were colored by not having worked in it at all because I feel right. like there's a certain amount of the comics internet that has like this fantasy view of how the actual industry works mm-hmm. and so I, I sometimes I want to shake those people and explain to them that Marvel and DC are like profit driven companies because if you just understand that, that explains all your problems with them. Right. Usually, and generally like anything that they do that offends you or upsets you is either because every person there is editing like 20 times more books than a person should have to edit and also they think X thing will sell lots of copies. And they only have one It's never, on the floor. yeah, I guarantee you there's no one sitting around like Marvel and DC going, Thank God we don't publish any any books that women want to read. You know, like they're just no, they don't even have the enough time to consider it. So right. like sometimes I, I see stuff like that and I'm like, eh, but then I think I've been working in comics my entire adult life, so I've seen all the different sides of it. Yeah, and but I that's know. an interesting idea because if they did, because because I think right now isn't aren't female readers kind of the biggest growing audience? They have been for like the last forty years, yeah, right? Yeah, and so it is almost if Marvel and DC doesn't think about that, it's almost like a negligent. They might as well be like 
Well, I'm pretty sure they think about it and wish that they could figure out a way to reach those readers, and then they realize they have 95 comics to get out that month. Yeah, there's always like, too, like there's never anytime they try to do something yeah. that's aimed at that. Like remember when Marvel was going to do their manga line? With like yeah. when and they hired the guy who did Skeleton Key to do like Prince Nemour as like oh, a manga. Oh, Andy Watson. Yeah. yeah, Andy Watson. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was totally unaware of that. Yeah, no, there was a thing, well, yeah, it was, it was uh, right before uh, Bill Jemis left, like, and Jemis was going to write one of them. Was Andy Watson going to draw it? Andy Watson was just, I think he was just writing a young Submariner comic. They thought that would be aimed at, like, teen girls. It was all, they were going to push them through the Virgin Mega stores, and it was really going to be aimed at a bookstore market. And the problem is they don't know how to reach those people fast enough for their own, yeah. like... The Stranger didn't make a profit for five years, and it was a weekly newspaper that came out every week. You know, like, comics don't think long-term. Like, Marvel, the direct market has trained people, a book's profitable before it's printed for them, or yeah. not. And if it's not, then that's it. You know, like, Vertigo tried to do that that line of, like, stuff aimed at teen girl readers, too. That okay, was, almost entirely done by guys, too, which was, I think, a huge... I was like, I think I only read the one that Cecil Castellucci did. Right. <laughs> well and she's a girl. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, the one. Really, there was, was probably, it? There was a couple. There was probably a couple more. Mariko Tamaki. Yeah, but... Yeah, but not yeah. doing personal work. I mean, here's someone whose skin was extremely successful and then, like, did a mate's book and it wasn't... Really oh, makes that was the name of the line. Yeah. yeah, like that had good intentions. I feel like there's a lot of times where they, where DC or Marvel have tried. Well, not a lot of times, but times right. where DC and Marvel have tried to reach different audiences, and they just. It's not that they bungle it. It's just I feel like they don't. Know, they don't. Like they don't really give it long enough way. to. They don't give it a long enough time to try, or they yeah. don't. Which I could I could argue that that being bungling though too. That like, is, yeah, that is bungling on some because that is throwing money away at that yeah, point. By then. the time they discover it, they're like, "Yeah, books lines canceled." Yeah, the line is yeah, because you do you have to have a you have to have a bigger plan. I think they I think they always try to do things on on too big a level too. Like, don't just start like a whole line of books. Like, I don't think Jeff Smith realized Bone was going to be a huge young oh, yeah, reader yeah. thing when he was doing. He was just doing it for the direct market. Like, mm-hmm. so I, I feel like that stuff always just ends up happening organically. I mean, Marvel's biggest selling thing in the book market is those Oz books that Shan Hour and Scotty Young do. Mm-hmm. Like those, when I used to go to the Marvel meetings, they'd put up all the stuff and those were the biggest selling things for the, for the trade market. So public domain, you'd think? It's, it's public domain, but also like really cool looking and they, they have, I have, I don't know if I have any of them here. Yeah, I have this one. This is how big they sell them in the, in the bookstore market. Like that, at the point, at the time they were putting that out, Marvel didn't publish anything that size and for the bookstore market. Writing Oz books since I was a kid. Yeah, he actually only got that job because Roy Thomas turned it down, and then it turned into a huge hit for them. Now I want to read and the Roy Thomas Oz books. Yeah, <laughs> the Roy Yeah, <laughs> like, just like Conan, but they take place in Oz. Yeah, but um, so they—I mean—they reached the youth market. They Marvel, I think. I think Marvel and DC have both realized the direct market is not where the youth market is, which right. I think is a shame in some ways because there are direct market stores that have kids that shop there. I've seen them at. Like stores here in town and stuff, but we interviewed uh, Jordan Crane the other day. Yeah, and his son goes shopping with them and reads profit. Yeah, see, it's, but I feel like, you know, I mean, the direct market. Say what you will about direct the direct market and comic retailers and all that stuff. God fucking love them. They've kept print alive. Like, if right. not for the direct market, I wouldn't have a Parker Martini edition. I wouldn't <laughs> have 
like my Hellboy hardbacks and like they like our my generation and and like the one right after me still likes to buy books and still yeah. likes to you know buy comic books and go to a place where you can talk to other people who are into the stuff like right. I, I kind of I'm I kind of feel like that part of the world is starting to come back I feel like we've had this 10 year period where everyone was like I don't like having stuff I just want everything to be digital like mm-hmm. we have some turntables now and like just even these little shitty ones and we went to Amoeba the other day and Amoeba was just packed with people looking right. at vinyl and I'm like and I was talking to a friend of mine who works at a record store he's like yeah vinyl's actually selling better now than yeah. it was 10 years ago all and the was, record stores in Vancouver are getting rid of CDs yeah and just gonna be yeah no one wants CDs everyone wants if you want to buy and, and I realized I was buying records that I used to have like long ago and I'm like excited about it because I'm like oh yeah this has a gatefold and yeah. like I like things I like being able like you you were in my place and you immediately started looking at what books were on my shelf yeah. because that's what a normal fucking human does <laughs> you come into someone's house you look at their records you look at their books yep. you judge them on what their taste is right. like, how well, are you was like no I, that's me like I, I cannot snap judge someone anymore I have to pick up their phone and start scrolling through their fucking iTunes like yeah. that's not gonna happen and also people have shit tons of stuff on their phone that they're never gonna listen to because they stole it off the internet yeah. like yeah. I have the whole Billy Joel catalog it's like yeah Billy Joel sucks it does say a lot more <laughs> if, you have, if you have a physical because trades are really like albums in a way yeah like, and I think that's where. Also, I don't keep yeah. single issues. I only keep the hardbacks and trades right. anymore. I just, I have, I just got rid of all my comics before I moved in here. I'd had like two stacks this tall that I've mm-hmm. been, you know, my, I buy comics every week at the store. I buy like five or six things and just give them away to friends or or recycle them even yeah. because right. I'm just like I don't, I don't really like keeping single issues around. Even as a kid, I never bagged and boarded things. I always just kept them in reading condition and once they started collecting things if I had comics that were worth money and there was a trade paperback I would sell the comics right. and buy drugs can, usually as you can see <laughs> I get mine bound cause yeah exactly that's crazy I thought that was that's awesome a reference to the Kanye West song yeah, <laughs> yeah I uh, put my comics in the front of a motorcycle and let the wind run through its hair I haven't heard <laughs> about this happening yeah exactly um, I feel like we've taken up an amazing amount of your time and I really appreciate you Oh, sure. I hope there's usable stuff here. This this has been really great. It's uh, kind of, like I said, it's like a perfect conclusion to our week in L.A. Uh, I like that Brandon is, is is now looking at an Oz book, maybe for the first time.